Do you like movies? You do? Then I bet you're already very familiar with our friends over at Vinegar Syndrome. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. The company was started by cinephiles Joe Rubin and Ryan Emerson and was said to be, quote, perhaps the most important home video label in the world of genre film by the Alamo Draft House. Holy shit, that is one hell of an endorsement. A big part of that is because of a three-step process I lovingly refer to as the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an expansive film archive of over 500 feature films, and they also work closely with archival institutions like the Museum of Modern Art, the Academy... Yeah, MoMA! The Academy Film Archive, the Library of Congress, UCLA, and the Walker Center. I can't even count how many of their releases have either never gotten a physical release or haven't been seen since the days of VHS. Many of these films look better than they have any right to look. My favorite thing about Vinegar Syndrome is that they have their own in-house lab, which they use to restore these films to all of their glory. I can honestly say that I have never seen any grain reduction or digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome was one of our first sponsors, and I'm overjoyed to say that they've stuck with us for five years. I'm still surprised we stuck around for five years, to be completely honest with you. That we've stuck with each other. Yeah, I know. I really thought we'd be done after the first couple months in the first season. We're still keeping, baby! Yeah, we are. So check out their website today to pick up your copies of the Forgotten Jolly Collections 1, 2, and 3. Though one might be out of print, so if you see it, make sure you grab it. Satan's Blood. Fade to Black, a VHS favorite amongst a lot of cinephiles that was uh, unable to be released for a very long time. Taxi Girls, Don Coscarelli's Beastmaster, an HBO late night favorite. The 3D film Silent Madness. And the weirdo French Christmas horror film Dial Code Santa Claus, a.k.a. Deadly Game, and many, many more. Visit them today at VinegarSyndrome.com and let them know that the Shameless Picture Show sent you. That's right, VinegarSyndrome.com for all the cult, horror, exploitation, and vintage porn you could ever want. However much that may be. Yeah, exactly. Really where we should start is the significance of this episode, aside from our incredible guest, um... We have been on for five seasons, and this is episode 100, which is pretty freaking cool. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a lot when you say, like, been doing this for five years and only had 100 episodes, but considering <laughs> but we're we do, lazy and we don't yeah. put out a lot of content. We do every other, we do every other week. Just or else we would go. We would drive ourselves nuts. Like you used to do a podcast, so you know what it's like sometimes to get stuff out quickly is well, sometimes a pain in the butt. And we aimed for once a month. <laughs> okay, <Yeah. laughs> or like once every three weeks. About yeah, and it was that was plenty. That was plenty. It's also yeah. hard to corral Ryan Lambert and get him in the mood sometimes. So good. <laughs> what was your podcast about? Uh, it was about everything, really. It was usually it, our podcast was. Um, it was usually guest driven. So like we had friends or, you know, people in the industry or just some cool people that we met just come on and talk just about what they do and kind of all over the place. But, uh, and then the other half of it was just Ryan and I kind of being goofy and and being ourselves (laughs) and, you know, sort of a preamble to, you know, what we were building as a brand going forward. And then we ended up hosting a, you know, a TV show together. And, um, you know, it was, it was all kind of set off on that. So, cause he and I just bounced. We're so, so, like on the same page uh, yeah. and we're very tight we're very connected and yet we're we're completely 
different people, <laughs> but we're really <laughs> in tune. And it, it, that worked out, you know, for the podcast because it was funny and just our conversations and goofing off, nothing really planned. And then when we did the show called Short Ends on, um, on, on Nerdists uh, and oh, Legendary yeah. Digital channel, where we showcased short films and interview, interviewed the filmmakers, uh, we just, you know, we just had our own goofy thing. And that was sort of loosely scripted and we knew what we wanted to cover, but uh, we had a fun doing that because we just play off each other and we know exactly what gag, you know, I'm talking about and he'll finish it and right. vice versa because we spent so much time together over the last, you know, 15 years appearing together, doing Q and A's or getting questions asked in a group setting. And it was like, do you want to answer this one? Or am I, I mean, we know what story we're going to tell. Right. Yeah. You know, who wants to start it off? And, uh, you know, and that even comes in, you know, with Ashley Banks sometimes who of course played Phoebe back in the monster squad she was five then but she's not five now yeah <laughs> and uh hell she just turned 40 uh, the other day <laughs> and you know we'd be in appearances and someone would ask the question and a lot of times you get the same exact questions all the time yeah but yeah. it may be the 50th time you've gotten that question but it's the first time that audience has been with you and asked that question so you got to treat it like the first time and uh you know we'd have fun you know like we just look at each other and go go <laughs> <laughs> And Ashley would tell a me story, and I'd tell a Ryan story, and we just mix it up sometimes. So it's, it, it's fun. At, at the risk of jumping into the topic a little early, I think, um, you know, I I had a lot of a lot of feelings when I finished watching the Monster Squad, and they were kind they were all over the map, and some of them I was confused by it, and some of it oh was I ca- I saved really, your list really good yeah I I, I saved your at list. Some point, he finished it and he sent me a checklist of just it, it almost is of just ramblings and I had to save it because it's uh when we it, it's just too funny not to. Oh yeah, let's get into that. I want to the ramble. But one one of the really really magical things about that film was I think how it, between the, you know, the the writer and the directing and the acting like you all pulled off this like real team spirit of of the kids all together, and then watching the documentary, seeing you all on that road trip together, um, really seemed to like it. It made it more special seeing you all in person as adults hanging out together to you know to see where those seeds were planted on that set. It was really really cool. Uh, interesting. Yeah, that's great. That's uh, that's a, that's a that's a neat thing to investigate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, oh, go ahead, Michael. Oh, I was going to say since we we want we want to get right onto the topic, and he That's... wants to hear the list. Uh, as it's uh, as customary in the show, um, is I always write a, a long, extensive intro to kind of talk about what we what we're doing. Because um, to give you kind of an idea of how this show came to be, me and Nick, um, both filmmakers and. You know, a lot of a lot of people involved in film you usually watch movies to inspire yourself. And when there's been gaps between projects, sometimes it's kind of hard to keep yourself inspired. And I and I kind of went through a slight depression where I was like, "Well, I'm watching movies. I love watching movies, but why am I watching them? It's besides just enjoyment." So we created this podcast because we realized there was each of us combined have a lot of movies we have not seen. 
And if you've ever been with movie people, sometimes it's hard to admit you haven't seen something. When they're like, oh, you've seen Apocalypse Now, right? And you're like, yeah, it's it's a good movie. And hope they don't ask you questions. Cut the theatrical or the international version better. Uh, You know. Uh, Yeah. Uh, The one that came out in Uruguay? Like, which one was that? (laughs) And you just hope they don't ask you questions. So we created this podcast as a way to discuss these films in a loving, non-judgmental way. So each each episode is kind of... Uh, based around a movie uh and i we set ourselves a precedent early on where we add in clips and i spend like a half hour writing an intro and explaining all this stuff when it would have been so much easier to just read off fandango instead <laughs> i go in depth so what but we're that's gonna where do the is, love is i will read our extensive intro and then we can get into the list and everything else <laughs> so let me pull up my my introduction please oh right ooh. I always do it too where I make the text a little too small. Alright, you guys ready? Ready. Alright. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of the Shame List Picture Show. I am Michael Byers and with me as always is a man who's quite sad that the creature stole his Twinkie. Nick Richards. Saddest part of the film. Yep. As it's our 100th episode, we wanted to do something special and I'm honestly still pinching myself uh, that this is actually happening. Today we have the star of one of the most important movies in my life. He's best known for his time acting, but is also a filmmaker and creator of the television show Short Ends. Without further ado, the star of the Monster Squad, the incomparable Andre Gower. Oh, hey, that's me. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> that was, yeah, that's a great write-up. I'll take that. Yeah, and I, I, haven't, even, I haven't even gotten to the description of the movie yet. Well... And, and I do, I have to say, you know, like Michael said, this was my first time watching it, but I think he has referenced the Monster Squad at least a half a dozen times over the course of the podcast, where he he finds ways to be like, and the seminal film in my upbringing, we have to talk about that for a second. Yes, it's... it's... Well, now you finally, you finally has seen what he's been bringing up constantly, yeah. so... You can now either commiserate with him or, you know, send the pipe bomb in the mail. So it's up to you. <laughs> I wholeheartedly want to be a member of Michael's Monster Squad. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'll, I'll explain my history with it in just a second. But at, to continue my introduction. So as is customary on the Shameless Picture Show, we like to do a deep dive on a movie one of us hasn't seen. In this case, Nick hasn't seen The Monster Squad. And not only did Andre star in the flick, he also made a deep dive documentary entitled Wolfman's Got Nards, which delves into not only the creation of the now cult hit film, but why it was why it has such staying power with fans from all over. Uh, this I've, I've said this to Nick many times. This was my Goonies growing up. I didn't see Goonies until middle school. This I grew up with. My brother and I literally wore out the VHS version my mom taped off television, and she went so far as to make sure it had no commercials. So she stopped it every time it came on television, <laughs> uh, so that way it could have no commercials. But those of you who are unaware, Monster Squad is a horror comedy from 1987, directed by Fred Decker and written by Shane Black, 
after meeting each other at UCLA. The concept is simple. What if a group of street-smart, monster-loving kids encounter the universal monsters they love, but for real? It was created as a modern version of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Andre here played Sean Crenshaw, who has a monster club called The Monster Squad, where him and his friends Patrick, Horace, and Eugene all talk monsters. Unbeknownst to Sean and his friends, Dracula comes back to life looking for a lost amulet that will allow him to take over the world. And he recruits Frankenstein, the Mummy, the Gillman, and the Wolfman too, with hope they'll find the amulet. With help from the cool kid Rudy and his little sister Phoebe, Sean and the Monster Squad set out to save their little town from the forces of evil. Trailer! Gentlemen, you see these file folders? Discipline reports. Lots of them. You see, sir, we kind of have this monster club. Monsters are not real. You guys missed oh! it! Oh, Rudy saved my life! <laughs> yeah, what the hell's monsters for? It's us! We're the monsters for! Good and evil are in constant flux back and forth. Only once every hundred years are these forces balanced. And what about the amulet? At the stroke of midnight, the amulet becomes vulnerable. And at that moment, it can be shattered. So we've got Andre on, on the on the on the show. He has seen this movie at least a couple times, <laughs> once or twice. And I felt a little guilty having you come on and having you talk the Monster Squad again because <laughs> I'm sure you've spoken about it ad nauseum. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, but you know, like I mentioned before, it's it's it, there's always new things to kind of glean or pull out. And you know, perfect example. Like you know, like it's a great conversation when you are interfacing with someone who has never seen it. And then also at the same time interfacing with someone who knows all about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's different perspectives and those much more refreshing conversations than uh, what was it like when you shot the scene where, like, you take the Dracula guy and was, was that cool? <laughs> You're like, 
You've seen Chris yep. Farley? Yeah, it's great. Um, so, but, you know, e- either way, um, whether you've seen this movie or not, whether you've seen me or my other fellow castmates in a group setting or a, a convention or a Q&A or either in person or online, when those questions get asked or someone's really excited about Monster Squad, um, yeah, we've probably heard that question before. The odds are we've probably heard the question <laughs> at least once before. Sometimes we get hit with a, we get thrown for a loop. Like, oh, wow. Uh, that's a fantastic question. Damn it. I wish I had it ahead of time. Uh, but if we've heard it before, it, it doesn't matter. Um, we may have answered it two dozen times, uh, but it's the first time for those people or that group in the, mm. in the theater or at the convention or the, you know, the kid, the kid, I said the kid, it's the grown man with his three kids standing in front of your convention table um, you know, really excited about something that means a lot to him. And, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta one respect that a little bit and to appreciate it fully for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, since, um, <laughs> I, I gotta say when Michael, uh, you know, I knew about the monster squad through Michael, but he's like, all right. And then we're going to pair it with his new documentary. Wolfman's got Nards. I'm like, Okay, that'll be like the. I didn't understand the connection to the film. <laughs> I didn't even know necessarily that they were connected. So then, w- when they got to that point in the film, I'm like, okay, this is going to be about the movie. I'm excited about this. <laughs> Not that I wasn't excited. Yeah, I but guess like, I didn't explain to you that it was about <laughs> the it, uh, about the movie. It's just like, it, it was <laughs> a really nice companion piece. Um, and I'm sure most of the people, or I'm assuming most of the people that have watched the documentary already know the film or already have a relationship with the film. So to watch the, the Monster Squad for the first time and then follow it up with like that beautiful love letter to the film and like all the filmmakers' experiences with it, how it like everybody thought that like, well, that didn't do anything. And then like, what, 15 years later, oh, wait, no, people are finding it was a really i i found it gave me all of the context that i needed to put together all of those disparate feelings that i had when i finished the film watching it as an adult it's just something that i've always known i could always go back to it it's helped me through some really hard times that emotional comfort of coming home that safe net when i didn't feel safe it takes me back to my childhood every single time it's like hearing that great rock song when you get your first kiss or something you always are going to remember it how many of you had never seen monster squad before tonight you're welcome the seed for the movie was, I want to do the Little Rascals meet the Universal Monsters. Scaring the hell out of kids seemed like a great idea, and then the laughs played against that. It was a crazy time. Everything happened very fast. This is probably the biggest thing I'm ever going to do. I didn't know that this would be such a formative beginning. When Dracula lifted her up, he hissed at me. I didn't have a lot of work to do because she was actually terrified. On an opening night, we went to all the theaters that it was playing in. I will not forget that. It was a huge hit. And by it, I mean the Lost Boys. There was seven or eight people in the theater. And then it disappeared. I never got the sense that this movie was finding a new audience or that its original audience were enjoying it again. 
first time I ever saw Monster Squad. I was at a sleepover party with a friend of mine. It was on HBO. Every time we go to the video store, that's what I'd rent. I even had a bootleg DVD. The word got out. Everything we had seen up till then had all been kid stuff, and this was the first taste of something dangerous. These kids are real kids. We were a part of the squad. We went to school with them, and we are them. This movie resonates. They put up the ticket saying Monster Squad reunion. It sold out real fast. Wait, you know this movie? I did try to start my own Monster Squad. We never actually performed any jobs. You find lifelong friends because you have this one weird thing in common that nobody else knows about. This is a zine I did. It's called I Had Rudy. Wow. What a really pleasant surprise that this seed that we planted grew into something. It's like shooting a basket in 1987 and then it doesn't go in until 20 years later. I think a lot of, and something that we talk about a lot on on this podcast is nostalgia, right? And how the films that you watch as a kid, you can never really watch through the lens of the adult that you became because you're always remembering the feelings that you got watching it as much as you are experiencing the film. So it's cool when we get these peeps into the other person's childhood and, um, I guess that's a long tangent way, as we were talking about, to uh, I, I was wondering what motivated you to make the documentary. I mean, honestly, it was a, a it was a, a kind of a, a culmination of the first few years of the resurgence and meeting these fans these people that somehow, you know, the first couple of years we thought, oh, Monster Squad, it's got a 20th anniversary thing. And, oh, this, hey, let's let's ride this, you know, while it lasts, which should be about six months. <laughs> and um, and then the six months went by and we're like, oh, this is like a thing. Um, oh, maybe it'll go a year. <laughs> and, and we thought it would just be sort of like this kind of nice little pop back, make you feel good for a year or so. And then it would die off like every other example of this kind of nostalgic jag, you know, that you, you know, you, you tie off and you, you, know, you <laughs> right. kind of put it in oh, there and, and you're good. <laughs> and, or, you know, you shoot the espresso and then it's the high is really high for a little bit. And then you're, you crash and it's over. Um, and what was interesting is that never happened. It did not peter out <laughs> after the resurgence and the first reunion screening at the Alamo draft house in 2006. And then fast forward to the next spring, we're headlining a giant horror convention for the first time. Then you're actually face to facing with these people and you realize that, Oh, they really liked this movie that we, we didn't know anybody saw for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And we're hearing these cool stories and you kept hearing those and, and you kept hearing those and it didn't fade away. It not only didn't fade away, it got stronger and the trajectory just kept building, which meant the found the elemental foundation got deeper and stronger. And yeah. then the new people that came on board or connect with you were just riding yeah. that foundation. <laughs> right. And then you learn there's a whole second generation of fans. And when I say second generation, I mean, maybe people like, you know, they see it as an adult 
or they saw it in college, but it hadn't resurged yet. Uh, they didn't know there was a whole thing out there or they instantly, you know, attached to it. But then also second generation in the actual definition that it's the kids of the original fans <laughs> that they're showing this movie to their five, six, seven, right. eight, nine-year-olds. And these kids are loving this movie for, for some reason. And now they're fans. And so <laughs> they're standing in line waiting to take a picture with you. It's not just there because mom and dad are there. No, there was that great scene in the documentary when you were in London Yes. Of the like what twelve year old or something yes, that's like no yes. my mom wants me I'm an eighties girl and this is <laughs> yeah. like that was so that was so screen. touchy and then you you know you guys made sure she could get in for the Q and A and everything and that was one of many times that documentary made me ball my eyes out. <laughs> she she was I mean absolutely something you can't plan for or script because you didn't know and we met her and her mom outside. Uh, you know, because Ryan and I were like, dude, the lines around the block. Let's go, let's go meet these people. So we took them. And we're like, oh, who are all these people? And uh, they're just, you know, going crazy. And our UK fans are like bonkers. Like there's a huge UK audience for Monster oh. Squad. And so we went out there and met. And and then that's where the thing, you know, is as part of the conversation about why the movie didn't do well is the rating that it got. And we had PG-13 here. It had a UK rating of 15, which means you can't go in unless you're 15. Right. And so that weird. still holds true. So wow. it doesn't matter if the movie's 30 years old. If, if they're showing it in a cinema and you're not 15, you can't come in. And so this is almost like watching, a, you know, a, a, you know, a Disney movie and they're showing it some theater in a foreign country and they have this some weird rule it's like no you can't come in and I literally told Paul the guy that runs Prince Charles I was like she, she can just walk in with me and watch it from the back and he's like no she can't be in the build she can't come in like they, they can write me up and literally shut me down or wow. I'm like this is insane wow. <laughs> do you know like, who I am do you know what this girl is seeing on television right, right. right. Oh, tip top like, and YouTube like, and so, so it's interesting. Um, yeah, and that, that's a touching part of it. You know, we talk about second generation and, you know, to, you know, have a number of years of that connection with these people and keep hearing these amazing stories. And at first you thought it was all repetition that, oh, my God, you understand this is my favorite movie of all time. Like, it's great. I had a treehouse in my backyard and I wanted to be you. And like my friend was Rudy. I wanted to be Rudy, but I was really Horace. And, you know, and. <laughs> And you hear that again, and then you hear that again, and you hear that again. You, At the beginning, you actually honestly think everybody's just saying the same thing. Yeah. And then after a while, because you think it's just repetition because they're, they enjoy the same subject, and they're just saying the highlights or the, you know, the, the greatest hits. But then after a while, you realize that they weren't saying the same thing. They were all saying something completely separate and personal. And how? how much this movie impacted them and affected them and in some place changed their lives or molded their lives or guided their lives in some way, which sounds really deep and outlandish, but in some cases it's absolutely true. And so you, you stop brushing those aside as weird things and you start looking at them as something that's really interesting. And then you realize that for some reason, whether it was the characters, the story, the effect, you know, whatever it is that, these people, when they connected with this movie, they really connected with it, either through the group aspect, through an individual character, through the adventure story told through, you know, kind of wish fulfillment, you know, saving the, you know, saving your neighbor or saving the world, you know, from the bad guys, you know, which we all run out in the street and we, we, we play that right when we were kids. 
you realize that this movie connected with these very deeply and 20 years and 25 and 30 years later, nothing has severed that connection and it's only gotten stronger. Yeah. And then I realized about two years or a year before we actually made the documentary that, yeah, this is neat. We had a resurgence and nostalgia and people, but it hasn't died back. But the story are these stories. And I thought those individual personal stories were what the documentary should be. And, uh, and I it's not you... a making of, yeah, it's not a making of doc. It's not a where right. are they now. It's not a, uh, and it's not the straight, Hey, we've got some nostalgia for you kids open up and we're going to shove it in. We cover all of that because you kind of have to, right? right? Yeah. But, but look, leads... we've seen a bunch of nostalgia oh. docs that are just, that's all it is. It, right. We've even seen films that are just nostalgia <laughs> shovels, right. you know, just beating you over the head with it. Like, ta-da credits. And I, and then when I got with Henry and Wes and all the guys at Pilgrim Media Group, when we were really framing this out, we realized that it was very important that's not what this was. Right. And it was really about the fans and about the story, because the only reason this movie is talked about 20, 30 years later is those people. And we thought it was very important to kind of turn the, you know, one of the examples I give is, you know, for, I don't know, since 2006 until 2016, you know, for 10 years, all, all the attention had been on us. And then I said, let's turn let's turn that kind of lens around and let's look at the reason why we're at this convention. Sure. And it's these people and it's these fans that have kept your name in their in their in their minds and in their mouths and, you know, this movie in their heart and their guts for so long. Let's look at that, interrogate that dynamic a little bit. And then it got deeper into how something like a movie can impact someone. Uh, and how they can stay connected over the years, and they re they really reinforce each other. And you know, then it got into the question of what is cult and all this other thing. <laughs> right. You know, so it, you know, it started to lead down that line. But it was very, very important at the beginning to be the to finally answer your question, <laughs> Michael. Is um, I knew at one point that those stories were a story, and that, that's when I wanted to start making a documentary. My original ideas of what it was were completely different, and I even experimented with like just going on the road and doing some crappy fan on the street stuff with some friends and some yeah. crappy gear, and that didn't that didn't work. That didn't work. It didn't service what I thought it could be. And then I got very lucky running into uh, Henry McComas and Wes Caldwell and Aaron Kunkel on the sidewalk one day. I didn't know these guys, and um, you know, two weeks later we were pitching the execs at their studio about teaming up and producing a documentary. Uh, because we could do it really good. Nice. And um, we got into it deep very quickly and started rolling cameras shortly after that. Wow. Now, I, I think the, what the documentary did so well, I think, was really nicely showcased towards the end when the interviews with these people that we've been hearing from the whole time all of a sudden turned into them talking about their favorite part of the film. And you can see these people tearing up, just, you know, when they're talking about, as, you know, as an adult saying Frankenstein getting sucked into this vortex, I'm like, this is so ridiculous. But why is it so goddamn touching? Like, it is, there, <laughs> there are these magical moments in that film that when... When uh, the scary German shuts the door and you see his, like, in uh, concentration camp tattoo, it's like, 
I did not fucking expect that. Like that got heavy quick. Well, yeah, you say exactly right. that got heavy quick, and <laughs> that takes your attention away that you didn't realize you got a setup. You know, you got almost two setups for a payoff later in the movie with his dialogue, but we just concentrate on all this adult shit that just yeah. happened. Like, wait, what? Now we're in World War II. What is happening here? Actually, but, uh, yeah. and this movie like got very deep, very quick. Some hammer hit of like really genuinely touching moments in this like kids adventure film, and I think that for me like explains why it had such staying power. And actually, that that was the first thing on your on your list. So when Nick finished the film, he had to, I imagine, frantically message me with that he had just. It, well, for, he he first messaged me and just says, "What the holy hell did I just watch?" This movie had everything. And then after he compliments the rap during the credits. He sends me a checklist, which I'm going to read verbatim for, just because I think it's really funny, and I imagine you're slightly delirious when you sent this to me, Nick. <laughs> right. Um, first check, Auschwitz Jews. Second chest, uh, check, Van Helsing giving a thumbs up. Next check, a six-year-old's prized virginity. Next check, 500 coincidences aligning to allow the plot to work. Next check, genuinely and perhaps brilliantly hilarious dialogue. Next check, absolutely atrocious dialogue. <laughs> and then the final check, Frankenstein's swan song that is both nauseatingly campy but also somehow incredibly touching. <laughs> and It pulled me it, in so many different directions. All this stuff happening. And I, and I honestly think that's the reason I, I, I like this movie so much. And, I, and I, I'm underselling it more, more than like. I feel like... Before I ever realized I wanted to do anything with movies or anything with film, like this stuck out to me as just being the smorgasbord of of everything that you can you can make a movie that just has everything that you want it to be all within one film unapologetically. <laughs> and you know, it's not in, it's, uh, Shane Black wrote this, and it's not the first time he's done something like that. Like you look at um, Last Action Hero, he's kind of doing Monster Squad over again <laughs> in a very different way. But it's it's I think that's why it's got staying power because it's unapologetically itself. <laughs> you know, I said to Nick, and this is not a knock on Goonies in any way. There's a couple different ways this movie could have went, and it could have been a Goonies style film, which is a fun adventure romp for the whole family. But the fact that you have all these weird layers of this onion that is Monster Squad, I think, is why it's so it's so good. And I just you know, even like. Seeing it years later, I'm still picking out things I never noticed. Like, you know, there was always that subplot with um, uh, the parents getting divorced, but it wasn't until like a year or two ago that I realized after Dracula blew the hell out of that treehouse, she had her bags packed. She was out the door. And the only thing that stopped her from leaving is the fact that her kids are in danger. <laughs> and I, I noticed that. I'm like, how am I still noticing things out of the Monster Squad? A movie that I feel like i know every which way but loose and i'm still noticing things and i think that's that's part of the appeal to me well there's a lot of appeal like i said this was my movie growing up and it was a movie that no one i knew heard about and it got to the point where i wore out the vhs tape at such a young age that i got to a certain point where i thought i made this movie up Because I would be like, I'd be saying to my mom, I was like, Mom, what was that movie with Dracula and the kids and everything? She's like, Dracula? It's, no, no, it's also got Frankenstein. <laughs> Abbott and Custom. No, you taped it for me. And just, she doesn't remember it. And it wasn't until that DVD came out in 2007 that I was like, see, this exists. I didn't make this up. 
Uh, right. Well, firstly, not the first time someone has said exactly that. Uh, but I'm going to circle back to Nick's kind of you know checklist. You you basically had the I don't want to say obvious in a bad way. This isn't a negative, but yeah. the the exactly right first response <laughs> viewing it from a 2020 <laughs> or a 2021 right. kind of perspective, uh, and as an adult, uh, you know, as an adult and in our current day and age. Uh, and then, you know, when we're talking about the, you know, it's unapologetically itself, or it's very Shane Black. It's uh, really what it is. It's 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 just authentic. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's what it, that's what another thing. If we're going down a checklist of what resonated and connect with people, it was, uh, you know, it was it. I always say it, what comes down the core of everything that we talk about with Monster Squad, it comes down to two things. And it happens to go with the story and the dialogue. And that's heart and authenticity. And that's what everybody connected with. And if you can do that in whatever story and create characters that people relate to or like or will root for, then you'll have a successful film. And I just spent three hours earlier today running those parallels with Jaws, (laughs) you know, of how why Jaws is a good movie, even though the shark broke. uh, (laughs) It's because, one, you had – you only and then I, I, I dropped this fucking mind bomb on this you know, on on the daily jaws on Ross from the daily jaws which is a huge jaws expert show <laughs> and i i realized that jaws is is a story jaws is not a horror movie it's because the question was is jaws a monster movie um jaws is an adventure ending in a survival movie and there's four characters fighting to survive in this movie you're gonna need a bigger boat yeah. Because the shark is a character. Sure. And the shark is just being a shark. <laughs> and once he starts getting attacked, he's just he's not a monster. He 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 gets made a monster by us. Right. Because he's just doing what a shark do. <laughs> and and then and you know, you have Quint, Brody, and Hooper, who are three different characters who we all end up liking and gearing their stories, and then they work together as a group. Uh, and it all has heart, all has authenticity, and we like all these characters. You start relating to them in one way, shape, or form. And uh, the fact that the shark was a character that also went through a character arc, uh, blue, blue, blue. <laughs> we were blowing the minds off the off the folks this morning. And um, but with Monster Squad, it, 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 I, I think that's the absolute core elemental, the core element of it is the the heart and the authenticity of the story and the characters and how they relate to each other. Um, and, you know, and then, uh, Michael, to, to mention something, you know, to follow up on something else you mentioned where you missed the luggage, uh, you wouldn't have seen that luggage until 2006 because you grew up on it on a VHS cover, which is pan and scanned and smushed. It's not widescreen. That's you true. don't see the luggage. In That's true. The luggage in also, you don't see one of my favorite bits of foreboding when uh, Emily, uh, the mother, is in the closet, and this is shortly after, or shortly before they ride up, but previously there's a scene between her and Phoebe, and Phoebe was scared of the weather, and, you know, she says, Sean says when lightning's monsters come, and that's just kind of jokey, because the monsters are coming, right. uh, uh, but, you know, the mom sets a candle by her bedside, you know, an open candle that says, you know, as long as the candle's burning, you know, this protects you, nothing can happen, you know, just to, to get the six-year-old to go to sleep. And when later on in the movie, a few minutes later, when she's in the closet hanging something up, there's a little tone in the soundtrack, in the score. 
And if you're not watching a widescreen version, you don't see the candle blink out. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Nice. But it, but in widescreen, you see the candle blink out, and it's a little ominous foreboding. Sure. Because we had the setup of what the candle represents, because candle is light, uh, you know, and, and, and can protect you. And um, when the light goes out, then things get scary. And that's, you know, the candle blinks out. There, there's a bunch of stuff like that. And, you know, even going back deeper into the, like, Nick, you were talking about the character, you know, with the, you know, with the parent stories and, you know, that this family's falling apart. Uh, <laughs> I also think that's what a lot of kids in the in the late '80s related to as well. Sure, yeah. Oh, my parents yell at each other and say the exact same shit. <laughs> I, I I love the the um, what the candle represents, but as a parent, I'm like, don't you leave that open flame next to that kid's bed and talk about how safe she's going to be because of the candle she don't burn herself. Again, we're talking from today's point of view, <laughs> yeah. right? But we're also out there riding our bikes at night with no helmets totally. and, you know, all this stuff. It's like the way you're supposed to. And I'm glad that was my generation Yeah, I don't look good in a helmet. <laughs> well, that's – like I struggled a lot with the and, – and I was actually really I, – I think a lot of my more conflicted feelings – Almost all of them were addressed in the documentary in a way yeah, that made were. me go, okay, I can set that aside and now just focus on what I really loved about the film. And one of those uh, was obviously a lot of the dialogue in the first act. And and I'm, I'm processing yet all of the, you know, uh, homophobia and the fat shaming and and things. And then there was this moment for me of like, yeah, but... Remember, that is 100% what all of your friends said to each other when you were that age. So they they captured it and didn't have the same, you know, hesitations that a screenwriter would today to include those lines. Um, and that speech, and I'm not advocating for including that in films going forward, but part of the magic of the film was how authentically everyone captured our childhood on screen and and the dialogue is part of that yeah i, I think i think you're spot on and there, there's a bigger point here but i'm gonna circle back you know you mentioned it in in the documentary we we address it and we address it early it's not like a chapter at the end where we have to yep. service it because we quote unquote have to today yep. it's a conversation yep. and we start off you know with it and we address it and then we talk about it and we're in a classroom full of college kids in 2017 or 2016. So it's a modern-day college experience where they've never seen anything that has, has been spoken like this, you know, even in this film class. And so I, I, that, was, that was on purpose. That was something that we thought yeah. about, you know, long and hard. It wasn't a mistake because, uh, you know, it should be and it needed to be addressed. And we wanted to find, you know, a professional yet fun yet also, um, uh, you know, properly way to service that and proper way to have that conversation and then we set it up we show it we explain it we understand what it is and leave the door open to continue that conversation when it's all and it's over you can always go back to you know different topics um but i think the reason that the character development and the words on the page were so spot on for that era is something that's very unique, especially, well, maybe not today, but very unique back then, uh, is I, 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 always, I try to stay away from Goonies 
kind of comparisons. I love right the moment there. in the dock when you're like, "All right, screw this, wrap up this." That's interview. that's the one little you know you know tongue in cheek nod <laughs> to that. There's a Monster Squad Goonies rivalry, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's not. <laughs> I mean, where we we won. And <laughs> the, um, yeah, <laughs> you know the uh, Ryan Lambert says it the best. You know, the Goonies tried to save the neighborhood from becoming a golf course. And the Monster Squad saved the world from fucking Dracula. <laughs> so um, that's quote quote Ryan Lambert. That's but you know quote. when you go back to the story, the you know the the the, the seed of the the characters and and the words on the page, it's written by two guys who aren't that much older than the kids in the movie are. Mm-hmm. Who are monster fanatics, old pulp dime novel fanatics, old classic movie fanatics, and current TV junkies, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s, being Shane Black and Fred Decker. And when you see something, I don't know, let's say The Goonies or a lot of other kids' adventure movies of the time, if they come across as campy or not funny, because they're getting written by 40, 44 right. dudes yep. that haven't been a teenager in 35 years. <laughs> and they're like, hey, what was what's funny today? What are the kids saying that's, you know, that's funny? And they're like, you know, back in my day, it was G. Willikers. It's like, what's the new G. Willikers? And it's, hey, asshole. That's what G. Willikers. And it, and that comes across a lot. Because when adults are writing for kids, it's always forced. Now we have a lot more writers of different age ranges and 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 backgrounds, and um, it's much more. It, it's almost. It's not. This is uh, this is the caveat. I'm going to preface it and then follow it up with it again. <laughs> that when when let's say a writer of a certain ethnicity or religion is writing characters of other ethnicities or religion, and they're just going off tropes or what they think right. you know their own conditioning is. Uh-huh. But it'd be a totally different character or dialogue if you actually got someone from southern India or someone from Thailand to write these characters or wherever they're from. Maybe they're Mormon. You know, you can't have a non-Mormon write about and make inside jokes about LDS right. when they've never exp- know anything about it. They may have had a Mormon friend in junior high. <laughs> doesn't make you an expert write a script about them. Mm-hmm. So it's almost the same thing when adults try to write. It's not. It's not <laughs> cultural appropriation. But it's a same kind of you know gap dynamic when adults are trying to write for kids. It Just never works. Writing something that you aren't connected enough to know intimately and therefore represent accurately. It's sort of like 92-year-old senators writing laws for 20-year-olds <laughs> of today. Beautifully it said. It doesn't work. Beautiful Sorry, set. sir, you have not been a 25-year-old <laughs> in 70 years. Why are you in this job? Oh, no, did actually, I get I, up on a political? Yeah. No, no, I it's fine. politics. Sorry. I, I, I think I, you're I, trying to get me to do my Mitch McConnell impression. <laughs> or whoever. Just plug in. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a side. Uh, I, I actually I, – I love the way that was included in the documentary because I feel like – um, it happens so often today, and actually, we we had a slightly controversial episode very recently on Ghostbusters because it was a movie that Nick grew up with, and it was one that I hadn't seen until very recently. Well, I'd seen bits and pieces, but from watching all the way th- through, and you know, like uh, some of the characteristics of Bill Murray were a little rapier than they w- probably seemed back in the eighties, and and things like that, and. It, I, I didn't like it very much, and but what where the conversation kind of came came to be was that you can still like 
art that's got problematic things as long as you are aware that some of these things aren't aren't cool anymore and it happens so often with with people they're like oh just get over it it is what it is and it's like yes but you should at least be aware that we, this is a problem you can you acknowledge know. the problem and still appreciate yeah, uh, I'm not saying people can't whole. can't like Bill Murray in Ghostbusters. Just realize that he's a creep. <laughs> well, yeah, we see a lot of that, right? We just think it's funny. Um, you know, if you want to go Ghostbusters route, it's even funnier that Ernie Hudson isn't on the poster. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Why? I, I don't know. Like, you, why? We know why. Like, there's an obvious answer, I guess, <laughs> yeah. from our lens today. What but, is you know, different about Ernie Hudson? <laughs> yeah, you can look at. The Monster Squad, the hero of the movie is not on the poster for Monster Squad. has nothing to do with her being the little girl. That would be a convenient argument for today. I know the reason she's not on the poster. <laughs> she wasn't able to come to the photo shoot that day. Okay. Uh, but then I never understood why they couldn't just take a photo of her because it's not a photograph. It's a, it, you know, it's an animated rendering of a photo. I was like, <laughs> you have the technology. <laughs> you can rebuild this poster. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Um, and put the hero of the movie on the car with us. Come on. Um, but so that was always a long-running joke, you know, that Ashley likes to tell. But, yeah, I mean, back to, I think, the, the whatever the topic of this <laughs> tangent was. <laughs> right. I think now we're um, at a tangent of a tangent. A tangent of a tangent. Um, yeah, I think that's where that authenticity of the characters and dialogue come from, is the fact that Fred and Shane were, were in their low and mid 20s when they when they wrote sure they still remembered (laughs) so right they're i mean they're literally 10 years older than me yeah you know or and and ryan when making this you know writing this movie so i have a question for both of you so on on this show when when we remember to do it because we're a very unorganized show sometimes (laughs) we have a we have a a, do you did you ever watch the simpsons Uh, uh sure so there's a there's a joke in in uh, in one of the earlier seasons when the uh, Bill, Millhouse gets this popular video game called uh, Bone Storm and he uh, he gets uh, he 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 gets his hair blown back and he's super into it and he's like oh I've only put in my name Thrill House and we've often joked that. Every movie, if you're into it, has a thrill house moment, a moment that just knocks you in the back of your seat. So I've got a question for both of you. Nick, what is your thrill house moment? And Andre, when reading the script, what was your thrill house moment that made you want to be in the film? So which, you guys can fight amongst yourself who goes first, but I'm curious. Oh, I, I have an answer, so I'll, I'll let Andre think on it for a minute. Um, for me, it was... Um, when the scary German guy closed that door and and that tattoo showed up. Thrill house. Mom, that took it from this like okay, this light, fun you know kids adventure thing, and it like kicked it up such a powerful like that felt like a punch in the gut to me that that and, and it it wasn't just the shot; it was the line that he said the. Uh, just before it where he goes yeah yes i do know about i'm badly paraphrasing but i do know about monsters uh and then that tattoo shows up it's like oh damn (laughs) so that was my thrill house moment i think you know if i if i've got to pull because one thing i always lament about what we actually see in the final version of the film of monster squad uh is is i don't want to say vastly different but it's vastly tighter and shorter than the original scripts that you know that we got to read i would kill to read that script i'm just saying i would kill to read that script there was a 
a lot more. I have the shooting script. I don't have early script. I just <laughs> have the shooting script. So it's still short, even though it has some scenes that were shot or cut or never seen. Um, you know, the original 100, 110 page, you know, has a lot of character exposition, development of these kids, how much stuff they actually know about this crap. Um, you know, and like, okay, these are the only only guys or only kids in this neighborhood that could possibly deal with the situation. Uh, and that's why they're only friends with each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> these guys know that no one else will be friends with them. And, but I think that's also part of the story that everybody connects with. You know, it's a group of misfits that find each other and ends up, you know, being the crew. Um, one of the sequences in the original drafts that I always really liked that just got chainsawed um, in more ways than one was when we're going, we've split up and we're going to find the amulet in the old house. And in the original drafts, right after you're seen with scary German guy's house and you see the tattoo, you know, just before that you get two, you get two setups and one is, man, you sure know about monsters. And he goes, oh, now that you mentioned it, I do. But right before that, he says, how come, you know, it's basically like, you kids have been running around and avoiding my house, you know, for, you know, your entire lives. How can you never, you know, I could be a cool guy. And uh, you always thought that I was some sort of monster myself, uh, a vampire maybe. But if I was, I wouldn't have a reflection. And that means he knows some vampire shit, right? Sure. And has read some vampire lore. Um, and I like to think that Scary German guy is like a really super well-read guy not That's just some old it, yeah. dude in the neighborhood right <laughs> and you know like probably a really deep philosophy or history professor as a jew in eastern europe during the war and like had to leave and give up his whole life but he took all of his knowledge with him but just no one ever wants to go in his house because he doesn't mow his lawn <laughs> um but so we have the vampire reference in the in the, in the reflection and then of course you know, tidied up with all the stuff in the first act when you meet these kids and you realize how much they know, um, which we don't really see in the final version. But we go to this house and originally, uh, you'll like this, Michael, you'll like this because you may or may not know it. Nick, you just saw the movie, so it may or may not be fun. But <laughs> we, we go in the house and the original concept was there's a guy in there. There's like some guy. And I, I always joke, I can't remember if he says he's like Van Helsing's great great grandson or like a real estate agent. I honestly can't remember. <laughs> but he's like, I'm here and oh, maybe you guys can help me. Uh, he's like, I'm looking for something and it's supposed to be here. I'm like, oh, and we're like, oh, we are too. Like, okay, uh, what do you know? What do you know? Okay, let's go. And he leads us into this house. And because, you know, as a bunch of, you know, teenage, preteens and tweens, we go in this strange house with a guy. Of course. Yeah. Which we would never do. <laughs> You know, after the street lamps have come on and we don't have helmets. But, <laughs> see how it's so different today? Um, apparently, you could still go in a strange house with a strange man if you had a helmet. You it's it's everyone's you know, you, get, you get one out of three. But we're walking down this hallway and it's getting kind of weird and ominous. And we just had that scene with Scary German Guy. And I like this sequence because it's selfish because my character sees it. As we walk as a group down this hallway... There's this old kind of broken, jacked up mirror. And Sean's character looks over and sees everybody except for him. Except hmm. for the scary except German for the guy? guy. Who, okay. No, no. Except for the guy that we meet in this house. Oh, that, yeah. Okay. 
And that's instantly a payoff for vampires don't have reflections. And so Sean goes, oh, shit, run. Right. And so we take off and try to get away from this guy. And we and now it turns into a multi-level Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> right. Going to trap doors and, and going all this house. And now we're underground. And we got to get on every level uh, that we ended up on. Like, how, how far down does these cat? you know, does this house go? Uh, we run into another monster. So we meet the vampire bride, like Dracula's on ground level. We fall down one and it's a vampire brides. We fall down two and it's uh wolf. Uh, uh, it's uh, the mummy and we fall down another one and it's Wolfman. And that's where we get kick him in the nards. And then we <laughs> escape and we have the amulet. Uh, so that was a much longer scene. Like in the movie, I think we're in that house for, I don't know, four minutes. <laughs> right. Yeah. In the script, that was probably like 10 or 11 minute scene. Okay. Just because of the chase and the scene and the other stuff. But for time and budget, I think on the day and on the weeks, like it got all compressed and rewritten into all happening kind of on the main floor. The guy's not there anymore. And, um, you know, we fall through one level and see the ambulance and then we get out. Um, it still works because it's fun. But I know what was originally written <laughs> was much more complex and much more kind of adventure Scooby-Doo episode <laughs> and multi-level game, you know, being on a, a video game. And getting out of these levels. And that was really cool because we see the payoff. And my character sees it and goes and triggers and goes, let's get out of here. We're in trouble. And it's almost the Zoics moment. <laughs> and <laughs> what was cool, you know, in the lore of Monster Squad and the, and the backstory is the guy that they cast to be that dude uh, was on set all day. So we were still having the guy in the house, but not the multi-levels. And then as the day went on, they rewrote it and rewrote it, and uh. they just decided to get rid of the guy. And it happened to be a guy who had auditioned for the role of Dracula that they liked. It was an Irish actor that had done a couple movies over there. And uh, they said, oh, he's really good. Um, but Duncan Regeer is Dracula. Like, he came in and became Dracula. He's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's but let's great. remember this other guy. Uh, and maybe he plays the Van Helsing great-grandson or something. And he was apparently, as the story goes... Confirmed by Fred Decker years later. This actor was on set all day, and they just never shot him. So they, they, he never said the lines on camera. Uh, and it was Liam Neeson. <laughs> That's phenomenal. I, w- I wonder if he went on to do anything. <laughs> I, no, I did. You know, I, I thought he was going to, you know, uh, this is right after Kroll. So, you know, he was going big time. So it's... Uh, <laughs> Which is one of my favorite fantasy movies. Of the, I love Crawl. That that's one one of the few VHS cassettes I still have is Crawl and Your the Hunter from the Future. Yeah, I love I love Crawl. I love that's uh, that's one of my all time favorite movies because those are the type of movies I loved. I was going it was kind of fantasy. I, I was a sci fi kid and a fantasy kid more than I was a genre or horror kid. Okay. Um, and that's where a lot of people, you know, freak out. They're like, what? You didn't like horror? I was like, I didn't say I didn't like horror. Right. I was I just spending like, my time playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, don't, like, don't cut up my membership. Um, There's plenty of horror movies I did like. I just like sci fi and Cold War spy movies and, you know, kind of fantasy, D&D, Lady Hawk, Kroll type right. movies, yep. you know, things like that. The fun stuff, yeah. The, the, yeah. And actually, that's 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 one thing I love about doing this podcast is where this podcast is not a horror podcast. It's just a general cinema and film podcast. And we kind of wanted to do that because I did it to myself, but I was, I've been labeled my entire life as the horror kid. And I mainly did it because it pissed off my film professors so much. Because <laughs> uh, I legitimately loved it. But I was like, oh, you guys don't like when I talk about horror. I'm going to keep talking about it. But then I realized... 
well, I want to talk about other movies too. <laughs> so we we just kind of did this, and um, no, that I yeah, you're right. I've never heard that Liam Neeson story, and I'm surprised that didn't come up in in the documentary. Call. Did you ever try to reach out to him and get him to to back that story up? No, you know, there was a long list of people that we could have or would have put on camera, and what it really came down to was Sands a handful of people, and I think it's four. It's um, Christina Klebe, Z- uh, Zach Galligan, um, Heather Langenkamp, and Chuck Russell. Uh, those are the only four people that are on camera that don't have a connection or an impact or a part of the Monster Squad. And so anybody that's on camera that's talking in this documentary is really someone that was either impacted by, in it, made it, worked on it, or had some sort of connection to the resurgence and had commentary on it. Chuck and Heather and uh, Zach and Christina were were set ups with faces in a genre to talk about fandom and nostalgia and how, you know, you know, people can recognize someone and it stays with them, you know, over time. So it was a great setup. But and also when we're talking with them, we're not talking about Monster Squad and we're not talking about their movies. They're talking about the movies that impacted them as kids that have stayed with them. So we even turned it around on the turnaround. <laughs> and only Chuck Russell, I mean, he mentions the blob, but we don't talk about Chuck. We don't talk about the blob because Chuck Russell's on the couch. Right. And, yeah. um, you know, he even mentions movies that, you know, that, that stuck with him when he was younger that, that kind of impacted or changed his mindset. He, he mentions Enter the Dragon. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Movie. Yeah. And yeah. that's a that's a great that, that that blew me away because I love Enter the Dragon and he was like I even was talking with John Saxon about that one time I'm like all right Chuck you're cool we get it Just, you, know, <laughs> you can name drop in my doc it's fine like who's better than John Saxon because as me growing up the kid that I was I went to the movies I saw new stuff I liked old stuff at late night TV but I grew up as a I was a TV fiend so the TV was always on and Saturday. All day Saturday was was great television. I'd play outside or play my organized sports. You wake up, have cartoons. You go play your sports, your games, or play around. You come back in the afternoon, and what is it? It's kung fu theater and classic movies, right? Yeah, for the know. rest of the day, and yeah. or be you know, and it's like there's John Saxon and and all these movies. Like I know who you're talking about. <laughs> right. um, and so that was that was a neat part of the doc to have those names and faces in, but to have someone like. Liam Neeson, that would have been a straight, oh, look what we did. Like, we're, here's a yeah, name drop fair. just to make that's this fancy. And we didn't want that. Because it takes, because what that, the screen time that Liam Neeson would have had talking about a movie that he doesn't remember, that he wasn't in, <laughs> just to have Liam Neeson in your movie is going to take away screen time from someone who has a story like a fan in Virginia mm-hmm. or the girl in London. Right. We're gonna t- the, the guy in his go. hospital bed that right, that, which that we didn't know that was gonna happen. Heartbroken that, that he missed the screening, <laughs> and that's a that's a great it's a if we want to go off on a tangent, that's a great story. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the moments that made me cry. I, as well. I wanted to know more about it. Certainly. Okay, I'm, I'm totally God, I'm totally blanking on his name. I, <laughs> I've said it a million times. Um, so we're in. We're on the 30th anniversary Alamo Drafthouse tour. I'm doing 17 cities in 17 days, right? And this is somewhere in the late middle of that whole thing. I think this is like day 11 or something, or day 12. And we're in Corpus Christi, Texas. And we have been in Texas for 
three days already. We've got four more days in Texas or something. And, and unbeknownst to us, like we knew it, but we were being chased by Hurricane Harvey the entire time. And we're at Corpus Christi two days before it makes landfall on this tour, mind you. So we have, you know, two sold out theaters for that night. And a lot of people say, wow, you did 17 cities in 17 days on this tour. And you did an intro, you show the movie, you do a Q&A, and then you go out in the lobby and take pictures and sign autographs for everybody that shows up. Yes, but also keep in mind that it was 17 locations, but over half of those locations had at least two screenings. So we had to do double duty every night. So we really did about 25 or 26 shows, right? <laughs> and it was insane. Yeah. So we're in uh, Douglas. His name's Douglas. And we're in Corpus Christi. And one of the things that we had to do on this tour is prior – anybody – that bought a ticket that was going gets a mini poster signed and it happened to be the Australian one sheet because that's the only one Phoebe's on and Ashley was on the tour <laughs> list. So the Alamo uh, you know, did this you know, event specific branded Alamo Draft House 30th Anniversary Monster Squad with the Australian poster and everybody that, sh- that bought a ticket gets one. So we have to show up an hour or two early depending on how many tickets and pre-sign anywhere from 300 to 600 wow. posters. Right. And so we're sitting there and we see some of that in the dock. We're just upstairs and, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the closets, you know, <laughs> signing shit and just same thing over and over again, hundreds of times a night for 17 days. And one of the managers came upstairs and said, Hey, um, I don't know. Uh, um, we've got a mom downstairs whose son can't make it to the screening. And she was wondering if, cause they, he knows they get a poster signed. He bought his ticket and, uh, he can't come. Can he still have the poster? And the the the, the that was Bridget uh, Bridget Garrett, uh, who was the Alamo manager at the time. There, I believe, yes. And me and Ryan were like, of course, like take the poster to him. And then for some reason, I'm not taking credit for it, but for some reason, I said, let me go down. Let me just go find out what the what the situation is. I said, let me walk this down. Don't just throw one at her and tell her to leave. Yeah. So I walked down there. You know, it's this mom, and uh, I don't remember Douglas's mother's name. Sorry, but um, I was like, hi, I'm Andre. She's like, oh my gosh, he's he's so upset. He wanted to come. He bought his ticket like three months ago, uh, but he's in the hospital and they won't let him leave uh, to come to this, and he's just absolutely heartbroken. And I was like, can we at least get the guy his money back? Like, this is, this is, this Something is, has is to he be sick? Done. Is he, is he, is he hurt? Was he in a car wreck? Like, well, no. And she didn't want to get into it because it was sort of kind of personal and, and a little embarrassing, I guess, at the time. But, um, he had had a, um, on, on his leg or something with a work injury, he had a, um, uh, he had an infection and, and they wouldn't let him leave because, you know, he had to get better. And I'm not giving away like medical secrets to this guy or anything I'm trying not to, but uh, I was like, Oh my God, that is insane. So what is his name? And she goes, it's Douglas. So I, I personalized the top of it, you know, for all of us. So he has something special. And then as she was walking away, for some reason, my greedy producer filmmaker brain kicked in. And I said, what hospital is he at? <laughs> and she told me, and I was like, okay, please tell him we miss, we wish he was here. I wish we could, you know, be, be there. I wish he could come maybe, you know, swing around next time. And if he gets better, like in the next 20 minutes, bring him over here. Or something. <laughs> I didn't know the situation. She's like, Oh dear thing. That's sweet. That's sweet. I'll tell him. And what's interesting is I think it was this. Yeah. It was this, it, the, 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 so we do two shows in Corpus Christi. 
And then at at midnight, we're wrapping up and we're going back to the hotel and we're on the Gulf and it's gorgeous right there, right? And I'm like, Henry, this is Henry McComas, you know, filmmaker, the guy that made the doc and, and edited it with me and, and basically made the movie. And I said, you know what would be awesome is if we got up before sunrise and went and got because we're not on the East Coast anywhere on the coast to get a sunrise shot, but we're on the Gulf, and we can technically get a sunrise shot over the Gulf of Mexico. This would be a great road trip type B-roll thing, like, and hopefully it turns out good. And he's he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and he's like, hey, that's a great idea. You're the film, you're the director. I, I would love to get doing, up at 3 in the morning. To- <laughs> yeah, I just got done doing – Star of Monster Squad stuff with the other cast. Now I'm in filmmaker producer mode, telling my crew like, "Hey, let's do this," and I'm like, "Yes, okay, let's go do that." You are and a only Henry and I got up at like three thirty or four in the morning. We drove. We didn't know where to go, and we found the perfect spot for that sunrise shot that we ended up kind of time lapsing a little bit. And then we come back and go to sleep, and then wake up and have breakfast. And I'm like. We're making good time. And now, granted, we're on the road. So we're riding to Laredo, Texas next. You know, border town, about three hours away. Nothing is close in Texas. And I was like, hey, guys, on the way out of town, I found out where this hospital is, where that guy was. They couldn't come last night. What if we stop by if we just go inside and take a photo with him? That'd be great. And everybody's like, Yes, Andre, what a great idea. <laughs> Ashley and Ryan's like, no, this is terrible. And so and Henry and the guy, like, we're in one minivan and the crew's in the other minivan. We go to this hospital and I get it in my mind that we're going to go meet this kid. But then I realized he's on a prohibited access wing of the hospital because of, you know, infections and all this stuff. We're like, no one can get in. So I end up talking with this hospital administrator she's like what do you want to do <laughs> it's like you can't like there's no vi- like visiting hours aren't until the afternoon i was like, no this is a video like we're okay we're also doing a documentary she's like oh, okay you can't bring cameras into a hospital and i'm like is there like no one's ever done like how would we make that happen because <laughs> let me tell you the story about this kid and what's happening here and she's like oh crap hang on a minute let me make a phone call <laughs> And I wish I remember her name because she was amazing. None of this would have one her. So, like, I'm running back and forth to the minivans going, hey, they're checking on something to see if it works. And I'm going in the hospital. I'm in the back. I'm, like, behind the administration desk. I'm in her office. She's got to call the board of directors of the hospital. She's got to call the lawyers of the hospital. She's got to call, like, the CEO of this hospital and get all of this signed off so we can actually come in, bring cameras, and shoot footage inside of this hospital. And then we have to get – clearance from the family and the patient like no no no, we can't do that this is a surprise right and (laughs) And she's like this is not gonna happen in the in the movie of the making of the documentary you then cut to your old co-stars going (sighs) oh they're all sitting out in the minivan for like two hours waiting for me to stop talking to this hospital administration oh yeah and the board of directors and the lawyer (laughs) it's just me and like some cut off jean shorts or something it's gonna be great guys it's gonna be great yeah and so about two and a half hours later, like we work it out and we, but we have to get kids like, okay, now you have to sign a waiver because you're on an infectious level of this hospital where you're not supposed to be. And if you die, we're not responsible. I was like, I'm in. Let's go. <laughs> and one of my crewmates, Wes, he was like, he's a, he's a germaphobe anyway. Like, you know, it's like if you have the, uh, our, my favorite joke with him is if you're in a hotel and you put your feet up on the comforter and your shoes are on, he freaks out. Right. And so I'm like, I'm like, Wes. 
this is happening. He's like, oh my god. So we all kitted. That's why we're wearing gowns and gloves because we were supposed to. But then like the family's just wearing like tank tops and flip flops. I'm like, wait, what is happening here? I feel like a total dork wearing all this gear. Um, and we were technically supposed to have masks and hats on and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, can we compromise the mask and hats because we're shooting a movie here? You can't cover up the money maker. You can't cover up the money maker. Uh, and then all we do is wear masks now. Um, so it's funny, but. Uh, so we go in and we meet down there like it was sort of a surprise, but it sort of got blown. But he didn't really know what was happening. And so we just bust into this guy's <laughs> hospital room with a full camera crew out of him with the greatest you know, surprise of his life. Oh, uh, but what kind of messed up is like I'm here's the weird thing. I'm down as I'm going back and forth to the administration and the minivans. Um, I'm by the, the elevator waiting for it to open. And this these two people come in and stand at the elevator and the girl just stares at me. And I'm like, hi. She goes, are you here to see Douglas? <laughs> and I went, oh, yeah, are you friends of Douglas? Like, wait, <laughs> surprises, but what's happening? She goes, oh, my, it's his sister. And I didn't know this was his sister until, you know, we meet in the room. Sure. And she goes, oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, Shh, it's a surprise. We've been setting it up for like two hours. Don't ruin it. <laughs> She goes, okay, I'll try not to. I think she kind of did, but uh, you know, <laughs> then it worked out good because the you know the window of opportunity there. Then so I just made everybody wait for like two and a half hours, and then we finally got to go in there. And we were in there for only for like twenty minutes or something, and then got out. We had to you know scrub down and spray down and get on the road and drive to Laredo and um, <laughs> to do it all over again. And then everybody was like, all right, great, we got the hospital thing don't never again we're not doing right. other hospitals. i don't care whose mom comes to the next i, I would i would have loved to been a fly in that van on the way back just <laughs> you're probably beaming and the rest of them were like okay well as the first thing one thing and i actually i asked ashley of course and i knew she wasn't going to and i was actually suggest her not to because we had her baby with us that entire time that's so right she was like, i'm not taking my 16 month old into an infectious level of the hospital <laughs> I'm like, you probably shouldn't. That that's uh, that checks out. <laughs> so she took a little video form or something. We played it for him, I think, or she, you know, gave sent him another photo or something. But Ryan and I went up there, and you know, that was, you know, for what it was, it worked out the best. And, yeah. and um, I didn't, I didn't want to try to put anybody in, you know, in an uncomfortable position, except for Wes, and <laughs> uh, you know, definitely not Ryan and Ashley because I've, I've been dragging them all over the place, <laughs> you know, making this documentary. Uh, but you know, honestly, you know, in the in the end of it, that was one of the things you don't you don't plan for, but absolute documentary gold in my right, right. something you come up with. I was like, this is just a lovely bit, and I'm glad we got to honor the fandom of Douglas in the way that we did, <laughs> even though it was completely self serving. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you, and, oh no, you, you seem a little hesitant to take much credit for anything throughout the conversation, but I want to push you a little on it because. The, between listening to Michael and watching the documentary, it's obvious how much this film means to so many people. And in the documentary, we get so many of the people involved, their reaction to that. But we never really get your reaction to that. So I'm wondering, like, what does it mean to you to be a part of this film that has meant so much to so many people? Not many people ask it, but it has been asked... <laughs> Before and it's fresh because you've just seen it and it's great. And I know where it's coming. It's coming from this fresh perspective of the movie itself, but then seeing the doc fresh too. And you're right. 
one thing is, is I'm in this documentary way too much anyway. <laughs> and I fought with Henry a ton. I was like, get me out of it. Like, cut my voice out. Like, get out. This is not a bio doc. Get me out of this. Um, and that was on purpose a little bit. Phil Noble, who is the editor in chief of Fangoria, um, you know, is a pal. I've known him for years. He asked me that question at our second festival because he was introing the movie at uh, the Overlook Festival in New Orleans. And he was like, look, you sh- I've seen the doc ahead of time. You know, we- I saw it in the screeners. Um, you know, first of all, it's great. You know, we love you. We love the Monster Squad. He goes, and we see all these great stories and what this movie meant to these people, but we never get your story. And that's the first time that got asked to me by Phil, who's an editor of a giant magazine. And I'm like, damn it, Phil. Why? I didn't know you were going to ask me that. And then in that moment, I realized what my answer was. And it's the same answer I'll, I'll, I'll give to Nick. It is, I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain what this means to me or how to go about it because we'd be talking forever and I still wouldn't make it. (laughs) Um, And so my answer seems like a cop out, but it's not. The documentary is my answer of what, how this impacted me. I think the whole documentary is my answer. Sure, sure. I, that that and makes that, sense. That's it, what I was trying to put into it because I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, it's, it's, it changes every day. It's <laughs> it's certainly a unique. It's such a unique position and situation to be in. In you know, not only just being the lead in a big studio movie in 1987 that bombs at the box office. <laughs> that's a whole other experience. If it didn't bomb, you know, it'd be another a different type of experience. But you have. And to arguably be, I don't want to say the gatekeeper, but still the leader of, the, you know, the, the the leader of the monster squad, <laughs> will, after 30-something years, there isn't any other leader of the monster squad. And this movie means a lot to a lot of people. And I sort of have, we all sort of have our roles still. And what that, our roles are being the ambassadors of the movie to the fans and from the fans back to the movie. And we're sort of right out there in front of that. And I've just been exposed to it a little bit more than everybody else and kind of taken, you know, taken some steps to, I don't say capitalize on it, but to like, uh, you know, utilize it into building things or making things happen like the documentary, which I just thought was a, it wasn't certainly a no brainer. It was a, it was a daunting task to put this <laughs> together like this. And I don't know. I, I still don't, I, I, my answer to that is always evolving. So, I, I just always say it's like, really, I think my answer is the documentary. Uh, that is the only way that I could attempt to express what an answer would be. Uh, and this is what I think is important. I think it, the important is the impact and that these fans are the ones that have kept this alive for so long. We didn't we haven't been talking about this movie for 30 years. You guys have, <laughs> you know, and, and you you guys and Michael and, and, and April Hooper and the Tappan Gots and Kevin Ott and Tammy Coleman and, you know, all, all of these cool people that we've now known for, you know, damn near 20 years, 15 years almost on the button. Um, they're them and their friends and their people that they'll connect to are the ones that have kept this movie alive. It's not us. It's not me. It's not Ashley. It's not Ryan. Um, so the, the, the credit has to be given where the credit is due. And I think that's kind of like I said, you know, it's a, it, the, it's not a cop out, but it's an easy answer for me that <laughs> the doc is my answer. And I'm trying to convey that these people are the only reason that anybody gives a shit about us in this movie right now. It's, it's up to, it's because of them, which is a, which is a very unique position to be in. Yeah. I'm going to go from a heavy question to like 
more of a really light compliment. Your your pearl button western shirt dame in the documentary was just beautiful. <laughs> I, I, yes, I do. I do have some in there, I, and I compliment yours as well. Uh, uh, I've seen, not not an yeah, intentional I, choice. I didn't watch the doc until after I dressed this morning. So. I uh, yeah, I've always uh, it's for some reason I think it's the cut of uh, cowboy and western cut shirts that fit me well because I'm very I'm short but I'm broad shouldered. <laughs> And uh, they just they just they hang on me well. Yep. I'm always kind of like the the clean lines of them and the design and and the style. It's kind of timeless. Uh, they come in trendy and hipstery sometimes, but then they're also kind of you can make your own style out of them. Right. Uh, and I'll I'll throw a t-shirt under one, or you know I'll wear it together and roll up the sleeves all the way up to my shoulders or something. Yeah, you know. And uh, yeah. And th- there's a different a couple of different ways to do it. And you know, not a lot of people can pull it off. So way to go. That's- <laughs> I've been trying to like put into words, like I'm sure because I'm sure you've heard every iteration of the story of the of of how this movie can mean to someone. And I was trying to think, it's like what makes my story unique. And the only thing I could think of is that it's it's my story. Um, that alone and, makes it and unique. To and to cut you off, you're exactly right. Yeah, and like, That's and like I said, what 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 like. Reaching out to you was a complete fluke because, like I said, my friend Wes Allen uh, told me how to get a hold of you, and I felt a little weird about it at first. But he's like, "No, no, Andre wants." He told me to if anyone wants to get a hold of him, this is how to do it. I was like, "Okay." And after I sent the initial email, and like I'm not one to get overly starstruck, but I think like it's because it's one of those. It's a movie that felt so foreign and distant. In, in a way, because like, I put it up on such a pedestal. And then, because it was one of those things that uh, I spent a good chunk of my life trying to tell people that, like, hey, this movie exists, and it's I think it's fantastic. You should check it out. And then there was a short, very short period of time where, like, you're almost sad that this thing that was so unique to you is now being seen by multiple people, <laughs> but then also a little bit of joy. But ultimately, like, I, I just want to say that I'm... The, like I got a little, like... It, it is a very weird feeling because this is a movie that me and my brother shared. And me and my brother didn't share many things together. He was uh, about five years older than me. He was born in 85. Um, and, you know, so anytime I was growing up, he was too cool for me. He didn't have time for me. And this was this movie was one of the few things. It was this and trying to beat one of the – and trying to beat the Super Nintendo Turtles game because that game was hard as fuck. Um, <laughs> and we never did it. And that was the only things we really had. And – I, it's. I almost feel like getting you on this show is kind of a tribute to him because he's no longer with us. He died unfortunately from a heroin overdose, oh, and I that. just appreciate that I'm able to nerd out about something I absolutely love with a person who is attached to it, and that your documentary did such a fantastic job of summing up why this is a little fucking gem in the rough. Yep. And I just want to. We can. I want to keep talking about the movie because I. I'm starting to cry, but <laughs> I just wanted to, while I had a moment to thank you, I just really wanted to tell you how much this movie means to me. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I, I wish your story and your brother's story were different. Um, no, no doubt. Um, but that doesn't diminish the fact that it still means something to you and, 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 to, and to you guys back, back in that time. So I, I feel lucky to be, uh, you know who wouldn't you know you have to understand and respect the dynamic that i get 
to be associated with a story like Michael and your brothers, whether it's tragic or not tragic, whether it's super happy and like your brothers goofing off behind you right now and, you know, slapping each other on the back of the heads. Uh, but we can't. So it's a it's it's the different end of that story there. But either way, there's not very many people in my position that get to be a part of something like that. And you have to understand that that means a lot to people. And I certainly appreciate your story and, and, and thank you for that. And I'm, I'm just glad that I could be part of something as a human being that connects with other human beings <laughs> that gives them some sort of, you know, kind of smile or at least curls up a corner of the mouth, even in, in even in a, a sad or a bad story. Um, and that's sort of, you know, what everybody asks about my relationship with Monster Squad. Not very many people get to be in, 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 a, in a position like this. First of all, not many, very many people get to be the lead in a movie that ever gets made by a studio, no matter what year it was made. That's yeah. very, you know, look at all the actors out there and the people that actually <laughs> get cast in something. But then, look, okay, we had the dynamic. The movie tanks at the box office for one of seven different reasons. And it disappears for 20 years. But then it comes back. A lot of people, especially we were pre the nostalgia kind of wave that we're in that started really heavy, what, five, six, seven right. years ago. So we almost predated that. And that's when, we, like I said, we thought it would kind of peter out. But not only peter out, we led the charge and we're like flying way over the nostalgia. Like this isn't about nostalgia anymore. This is about this concrete loyal army of Monster Squad yeah. fans. Uh, and then in the in the wake, we kind of churn up some nostalgia fans that just come <laughs> along for the ride. But then they jump on like, oh, yeah. But to realize and to have something like that last this long, and this is 30-something years later, and I get to, you know, I just did a, a, a giant podcast in the, UA, uh, in the UK today about Jaws, and then I get to turn around and, and, and Skype in with you guys, uh, and then I get to do, an, you know, a magazine article about the – like, not very many people on the planet get to be in that situation to talk about something that people still love and dig and mean something 30-something years later – and really, the least you can do is service a little bit of that time. But one, I enjoy it. Two, I got to make the doc out of it, which was a big accomplishment for me. And two, I think it turned out okay. I thought I think it turned out pretty good, and people are enjoying it. And you have both mentioned things about the documentary that if I'm explaining the documentary, I try to hammer it home of what this doc is trying to do. And I love when I don't have to to do that because you guys have already mentioned that stuff and so that means that that we and when i say we me and henry and wes and you know that when we put this together and tried to make this the things that we wrote on the page on the paper on a grease board on a post-it note or in our phones as a note and we were trying to edit and make this or our, our mind that some of it happened and you know as a filmmaker or even as, as a producer like that that means a lot so i just appreciate being in the position daring cool guys like you be like hey man you know that really worked and uh you know without being prompted you know by it and you know statistically not very many people get to be i'm sort of in this double whammy position you know it's this movie or a triple whammy position really this movie was a thing it died no one knew about it it came back i'm still the kid that was in the original but now it's this whole resurgence so i get to be sort of you know, I don't want to say it's the band leader, but, you know, I guess I'm up there with the baton kind of, hey, everybody, let's go, let's go sign some pictures and, and, and meet all these cool people. And then it's never like a fan. It's like, then I'm like, Michael, Nick, get behind me. Let's go. We're going to go to the next event. Let's go meet all these cool people. You're just part of the band now. Let's go. Yes. And not very many people get to do that. And 
and then especially get to make a movie about that dynamic and then to have it, you know, decently received or well received, depending on who you talk to, and then hear cool stuff. So you gotta understand that that's a very unique position. And and, and as an individual, I try to appreciate that as much as I can, knowing that not everybody gets to be able to do that. Yeah. Awesome. I guess the the biggest and most important question that I have after that is how hard did Horace kick the Wolfman in the nuts? <laughs> Nards, I believe they were the Nards. Nards. So my mistake, because <laughs> it looks like he he nailed him. Well, I, I think it's a little bit of uh, good good stunt work. I think it's a little bit of good selling the kick. There's definitely some padding in there, <laughs> and some camera angles, and a good job by Brent Chalem of selling that kick. A good job of the sound designer and mixer to make a thump. You know, yes. like, what does that sound like? I'm going to hit you in the, the, the nards just so I can hear it. Yeah, it's a little hair. It's like, I can, you know, we feel that. It's a visceral feeling anytime anybody gets, you know. I, I, I just had to ask because I, I, you, you had mentioned talking to Chuck Russell and Chuck Russell named John Saxon. And I thought of something because, like, I met John Saxon one time at a convention, and he was signing pictures of him punching Bruce Lee. And yeah. I was, I was looking around the pictures, and I just, I lingered on that one for a second. And unprompted, he just goes, "I really punched him right there." <laughs> and so, like, I'm just thinking, just like, did Horace really kick the Wolf Man? And yeah. I just wanted to bring it yeah. back to that, and I wanted to name drop that I also talked to John, <laughs> John unprompted. John hey, uh, unprompted. Not, I don't think I've ever met John Saxon. Yeah, he's just, he just he unprompted just said. I punched him right there. <laughs> I'm the only man to punch Bruce Lee and get away with it. <laughs> the only man to punch Bruce Lee. I was standing there watching it, obviously, and uh, you know Brent sold it. I think there was some padding involved and the stunt. You know, Carl Tilbrook was the guy that was actually in the Wolfman getup. And um, yeah, just wail away. And if it hurts, then it's method acting. <laughs> Since we brought it back around to to the that particular character. Um, I'm going to, uh, at risk of you shutting down the interview, reference the Goonies one more time, but in a way that's complimentary to uh, Monster Squad. Um, as I mentioned, I, I struggled with a lot of a lot of the content, and the fat shaming was one of them. And so after I finished the movie, and I'm thinking about this, and I and I make the obvious comparison to to Chunk, and I'm thinking like. You know, sure, there was the truffle shuffle, and that was bad, but, like, I just, I didn't like that they were constantly calling him Fat Kid and stuff, and then I go, wait a minute, his name was literally Chunk in the film, so that brought him equal in my head, and I'm like, okay, that's the nostalgia factor making me, like, ignore the fact that the Goonies was equally as problematic, but then I realized that what the Goonies did not have that Monster Squad did was that moment in the end where that he tops that shotgun and he says, no, this is my name. He, he, he got the success, he got to overcome all of those issues that never happened in that. So there, it was a really quite a journey for me last night of going from like, oh no, see, like Goonies was okay and Monster Squad, I really didn't like how they did that. And then going to, wait a minute, nope, nope. The Monster Squad actually did it the right way, and and again, not advocating for for it being okay. And and we've all acknowledged that you know if it were being created today, it wouldn't be the same way. But the fact that they gave him that 
that redemption story to overcome all of those people that were saying those things and doing those things and acting in those not okay ways really made that within the context of that time, like a real success. Um, no doubt. And you don't really get that redemption or that character arc in a lot of other things. You right. don't get it with Jeff Cohen as Chung. Yeah. Uh, and what the Goonies doesn't have that, you know, and on the page, like we don't call him the fat kid. We call him fat kid. That's just, that's his name. But we're the only ones that can call him that, that he doesn't because we're his family. Right. Right. And it's almost, it's the same thing in other movies where you've got like maybe a sports team or whatever. And the big Ophi kid is named Moose. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and it, it reminded me of, we just recently did Midnight Cowboy and yep. where uh, Rizzo the Rat is constantly throughout the whole film saying, no, that's not my name. Come on. In my own home, at least call in. And even in that last scene, uh, uh, John, John Boyd's Boyd. character still like as he's dying, it's probably the last thing he hears is him calling him Rizzo one last time. It's like, fuck. Man. Right. And what also Monster Squad has that it, since we're, apples to apple you know comparing to goonies here with these two characters which are very similar um one thing henry has a great take on on goonies versus or you know chunk you know compared to horace with character arc and how his friends you know in 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 the manner that they interact with him and they we don't we never treat him poorly right right uh the goonies actually treat trunk poorly by making him do the truffle shuffle just to you know come in the house yep. or, or get you know uh, get get the candy bars like, that's awful <laughs> it's like yeah, dance it, absolutely dance. and we don't have that um and we're the only ones that can call him Beckett. when ej and Derek call him that that's a mean thing like they're really calling him like you're the fat kid right and but what I also think is with that with that difference between the kids of the squad and the kids outside the squad, uh, I think a lot of kids related to that as well. Yeah, uh, you know that's all the movie. But also what the Goonies does not have is they do not have a Rudy character. Ah, oh, Rudy's you know, so cool. Rudy to Horace, Rudy to Horace character. <laughs> and if you notice, or you know Ryan Ryan mentioned this years and years ago, and he said if you notice the character of Rudy. Rudy's the only kid in this movie that doesn't swear, and he never calls Horace fat kid. I okay. I would was going to revisit this film anyway, but I will probably revisit it yeah, very soon will. just to to so even as yeah even as an outsider killer that ends up in the squad. Rudy he he never uses foul language, and he's the badass, and he never calls Horace fat kid, right. uh, or makes a joke fun and like we never really poke a joke at him, like we never say like. Horace can't come in here because he can't fit or something. We, that never happens. That yeah. happens in other movies. Um, we just happen to call him Fat Kid. And I think what that was was he's been called that his whole life. And so we as his crew adopted that to own that for him. Right. Take, take in the turn back. Take the turn back and own it. Yeah. And you're, mm -hmm. you're our, our guy. It's just syllables. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean it's not who you are. But then, of course, what, especially like you mentioned, Nick, but Goonies doesn't it does not have that character arc and that redemption and that wish fulfillment yeah. of not only stepping up and being a badass. And Seth Green says it great in the doc. He's like, he shows that he's the only character in the movie that has any balls, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, ultimately, who was afraid 
But, you know, as the, as the whole story goes, but especially with Horace's character arc, if you were that bullied kid or that un- uncomfortable kid or the overweight kid, you would hope at least one time in your life you're faced with a situation that you that you may have to or should step up. And then we all want to be able to say, I stepped up. Yeah. And, and I did it. And, and not only so that. Horace personifies that to a lot of kids, I think. Yeah, the the fact that he he shoots a monster, this this terrifying creature, and that after that moment, what he's thinking about isn't, oh my god, I almost died. Oh my god, these monsters are real. It's you can't bully me anymore. I I think yeah. it shows how powerful uh, bullying is, and and how how detrimental that is that. It seemed more important to him to stand up for his identity than it was that he almost got mauled by, you know, a fish <laughs> monster. A creature. Yeah, and the, and the fact that you know it, 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 like you said, there's 500 things that have to happen to make this movie work. And, <laughs> you know, one of them is that oh, the store that the Gilman happens to pop out of the sewer in front of is the store that the asshole bullies are you know hiding in. You know that. Of course. You know, what are the what's what's the odds? But it's uh, it's, it's movies. That's why we write movies. It, oh, and, yeah. Oh, and wouldn't you know it? EJ and Derek are hiding in the comic book store. Um, and as badass and tough as they were, they can't get up to unlock the door to save one of their schoolmates. Yeah. So nope. now when he learns that, Horace is like, you know what this is? This is exactly what the world is like. No. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right, right. Bullies like me now. <laughs> Uh, that's not what he does. No. He says, yeah, I ain't buying your shit. What? Right. <laughs> Good job, my ass. I just saved the world. <laughs> yeah. And it, it shows that it was true uh, character change versus just this, like, little victory. Yeah. It, yeah. There's been, there's... It, it, it proves that it wasn't a fluke. Yeah. yeah and, there, and there's been, like, cool... F- for lack of a better term, cool fat kids in movies throughout history. And, you know, like growing up a fat kid myself, I was always looking for, like, any any bit of, like, oh, he's fatter and he's getting respect, you know. But, like, this, this was one of the the best examples of it was the fat kid in this movie blasted the hell out of the gill man with a <laughs> shotgun. You know, like, how is that not the coolest thing ever? So, like, I – and – like and, and it feels like you mentioned it before. It's you know it's 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 earnest and it's organic. It doesn't feel like, and I could be completely wrong. It doesn't feel like you know uh, Black and Decker, which I just I love that alone. We're sitting there being like, man, this is gonna this would be the, a really cool scene if we did it this way. It just felt like they were just really trying to do these characters justice, and it just happened to be something really cool. And, and so much in this film just doesn't doesn't feel like they're sitting down just trying to come up with cool moments. They're just trying to tell a good story in a really redonkulous plot. <laughs> 
And that's what I like a lot. It just feels, like you said, earnest. Yes, and I, and I think Shane even mentions that a little bit when he talks about it. And he touches on it a little bit in the documentary of, he goes, I don't, I don't think we were, we weren't, when we were typing words on a page, you know, I don't think we're trying to aim, we're not aiming for those targets. Like, we're not trying to hit those things. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what was, the, the stuff that's huge in our mind, uh, you know, like, look, I, thankfully the words Wolfman's got nards is written in a script somewhere because <laughs> my character got to say kick him in the nards and then don't forget Horace not only shoots Creature with a shotgun but he also kicks Wolfman in the nards <laughs> right, yeah. you know, prior to that so he, like, he's stepping up literally early on <laughs> and I had never heard the word nards before I even asked Fred if I could change it like on the day I remember this vividly and we had a conversation about it and you know it's it's there's a longer learning lesson experience in, in that exchange. And and but I'm certainly glad we 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 didn't change it. Uh, I'm Fred, glad he's I, stuck I think with Fred his artistic like integrity. <laughs> yeah, Fred doesn't like that line because it's not his and he thinks it's lame and it was a, a Shane Black thing and, and I, I swear no one had ever heard that before. No one has said <laughs> Nard, like I had never heard anybody say Nards. It must be a Pittsburgh thing or whatever, and for, you know where Shane's from. And I'm like, but I'm glad it didn't change because yeah. it, it would had the same impact because it became part of it became part of a lexicon, right? Yeah, and it certainly impacted the Goldbergs. It. Yes, right? <laughs> and, I mean, how documentary gold is that to find out and end up being friends with Adam F. Goldberg and then learning that? Uh, because we connected over uh, – I love the show. Uh, and it was it was very – it was a, it was a weird, another serendipitous week um, that he was trying to get in touch and find out who these actors were in this old commercial. Um, and everybody on his Twitter feed was like, everybody knows – the kid in the E.T. Atari commercial is Monster Squad's Andre Gower. <laughs> and I was like, apparently not everybody knows that or he wouldn't be asking. And so his office called me the next day and they were trying to get a, a, a talent released because they wanted to use that old commercial on an episode of the show. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so then, honestly, this was a I think this was a Thursday. And I swear on Monday I had a list of names and faces that I do not know that I was going to reach out and cold call personally, not our production office or the researcher, but myself to try to get in contact with uh, to be a part of the documentary. And I knew Adam F. Goldberg was a fan and I knew, you know, he'd be perfect to talk about how movies and impact me because he just made a whole damn TV show about it. Right. (laughs) And I asked his assistant – I was like, by the way, while I got you on the phone, this is really weird. I swear to God, on Monday, I was getting ready to call your office to see if I could leave a message and if Adam maybe contact me because I'm making a documentary, blah, 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 blah. And she goes, wait, you're doing a what? That sounds like something Adam might well, – he goes, I'll pass it along. Let me see find out. Let's work on this commercial first. And lo and behold, like he wrote me the next day. It was like, what do you need? Like do you need wow. money? Like do you need fun? You're making a documentary? What do you want me to do? I, I'm in. I normally don't like to be on camera, but this is my thing. I am in. Wow. And he got behind it 100% um, all at the same time while uh, I – and then he called me back and was like, by the way, do you happen to have a copy of the E.T. Atari commercial? Because we're trying to use it on the show and the only one we have is ripped off YouTube and it's in <laughs> right. kind of bad shape. And I'm like, well – there's a VHS copy in a box in my mom's garage. Um, I think I could have my sister grab it and FedEx it to me. And he's like, that would be amazing. Um, 
can you have it to my editor by like Tuesday? I'm like, it's Friday. And he's like, yeah, the, the show, it's next week's show. I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? And so I ended up, he used my VHS copy of wow. the E.T. Atari commercial <laughs> for the episode of the Goldbergs, which led to him and me connecting and getting him in the documentary. And then I had no idea. But honestly, uh, not a couple weeks prior to that, an episode of the Goldbergs was on in the background. I was actually at my sister's house. And one of them said Nards. <laughs> I was like, did someone just did say Nards? <laughs> And I didn't know the Goldberg connection yet because this is months prior. And then I meet Adam and then we're doing the documentary. And he's like, by the way, I've got to tell you, like, I have written that word into every single thing I've ever written because it's one of the most impactful lines of dialogue that I've ever heard in my life. And I think it's so funny. And I make people say it. I make people write it and they have to use it. They don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, but it's so important to me. And I didn't know. He goes, and by the way, do you mind? I'm going to have my editor make a supercut of like. <laughs> I'm using this. <laughs> right. Thank you, the Monster Squad. <laughs> I, I also think like one of the like one of the things that I I I I think anyone who's who loves film loves any anything about film, like documentaries, movies, anything that kind of pulls the curtain back a little bit. And one thing that I have found that I have this weird obsession with the last couple years is is when you see filmmakers or creators talking about something that they've done and they are completely opposite than what you're expecting because that was the biggest thing I, when i was watching that and like that you'd hear fred decker and shane black talking about this movie and it's like granted i know this was like 30 years ago but you guys do not seem like you have this much of a sense of humor to be writing crazy words like nards and <laughs> having you know the fat kids shoot the gill man and all this because like especially because in their interviews they're just very as a matter of fact and straightforward and i don't really know where i'm going with this i just wanted to point it out that i just think like these two guys wrote a movie that i still find hysterical and it just feels like they have no sense of humor whatsoever and i love that it came from someone who on the surface feels that way because it just kind of makes you feel like you can you know the unassuming guy next to you could write comedy gold and you'll never know and i just i i, I kind of loved that yeah I, I i totally get what you're saying uh and and by the way they're both extremely funny because if you just all you have to do is shane doesn't walk around as a as a you know jokes jokester guy but when he writes stuff, his, his his wit is biting and it's cutting and it's very funny. Yeah, because I've read some of I, I've read some of his scripts and it's like it's definitely there. And like that's pro- probably where he, he he seems like he's got a very dry sense of humor in person, but he gets all the the goofiness out on the page. Yeah, it's it's very pointed. And uh, Fred's a little more of the uh, I don't say camp because I don't like camp, but um, as as a descriptor, but uh, a, a little bit more um, uh, animated. Uh, you know, with that stuff on, on the surface of getting, you know, pulling out exactly what, you know, maybe it's a joke or a situation. 
but he's also very enthusiastic and knowledgeable. And like, you'll sit around and have a drink and just be cutting up for an hour straight. Right. Because <laughs> uh, he just, you know, we all turn into little kids and we just start goofing off <laughs> and telling jokes or telling funny stories or, you know, weird situations. The difference in the documentary is two, th- two things. One, Shane doesn't appear that way in in human life, like when you're in, in when you're IRL with Shane Black, you know, he's this guy, you know, he's, he's, he's definitely got this look and this focus and kind of this, all, all of that humor is hidden and it comes out on the page, even though he's a funny guy. Uh, Fred is a little more animated personally, but when you see Shane in the documentary, what no one knows is that's a very stressful time. Uh, that's why Shane looks like he's all, he's, he, he's a, he's a little tired. He's a little like not, you know, he has no sunlight on his face because <laughs> the door that's over his shoulder is the main editing suite at 20th Century Fox, and they are cutting the first cut of the Predator. So they're like they're in a pressure situation. They're making oh. this hundred million dollar movie. Oh no! I'm sitting there with my crew talking about Monster Squad in his production <laughs> office, um, and yet he still talked about it for 40 minutes straight and told wow. great stories and his perspective. Fred Decker's interview, on the other hand, is the anti-interview in this documentary. It's it's not a celebration. Um, it's right. not, oh, this is the best thing that's ever happened. Oh, yeah, and I life. loved his interview for this. I just didn't want to cut you off, but that is one thing I loved about it. And because he's the only one that has this particular and sometimes not positive relationship with this movie. Uh, that is so adored, and look, you know, look, look how well received and loved this movie is around the world. And the guy that co-wrote it and directed it, it's one of the worst things that ever happened to his life. Yeah, and and what he says in the documentary is that it's the the best thing that he thinks he's ever done. So to have that like quote failure, you know, perceived failure, box office fit, you know, however you want to word it, for this thing that you feel so strongly about, uh, yeah, I I can only imagine. Uh, It reminds me, I'm going to misquote this, but I remember either in an interview or something with, with, uh, it might have been like a a fan thing with John Carpenter, where someone was saying, it's like, oh, I I, I love the thing, I think it's one of the, the, the... the the greatest movies I've ever seen, and just very, in a very coy fashion, he's like, "I wish I would have had that back in the '80s." Like, <laughs> you know, like it's great to have that feeling now, but when it really mattered, it wasn't. There. Where were you on release day? <laughs> yeah, and and that's you know one of the things that Fred has always struggled and asked over thirty years, and you know it was it was a product of very many things that 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 in that did not enable this movie to succeed where it should, which should have been a word of mouth success movie. Like Michael goes and sees it. And then on a Saturday and then goes to school on Monday and goes, Oh my God, Nick, I just saw this movie. I, you know, I went with my brother and saw this monster squad movie in the theater and you've got to go, I'm going to go see it again on Saturday. You got to come with me. The problem in 1987 is you only get 48 hours, maybe 72 hours. The first 48 hours, 72 hours Mm -hmm. to whether you're going to get, next weekend or not sure yeah yeah it's a different times of other factors monster squad did not get a strong first 48 72 hours therefore it was pulled right away in most markets and you didn't get to go tell your friends at school on monday to go see this movie and I, if you did and they did go it was no longer there and then it was dead and everybody forgot about it I, I thought that the the wolfman's got documentary and st- that's still so 
funny to say in a serious tone, but uh, <laughs> dovetailed really well with um, the the last blockbuster documentary. Yeah, actually, um, I watched those right next to each other too, un- unintentionally, because both of them go into this like the the backstory of like the the licensing rights attached to VHS cassettes and and how like all all of these issues that have to do with distribution that can tank otherwise successful movies and it it you know you could go on and do more documentaries just about that but it, it, it's like this fascinating time that that we grew up in um, that kind of dictated what made it into no doubt screens yeah like i said i mean it's unfair i think it's unfair for fred decker to go to director i mean he made another big movie after this you know you know what uh fox or uh um, who did robocop um whatever studio calls up and says hey mr decker uh we're doing the third installment of our giant franchise do you want to direct it what are you going to say no (laughs) right yeah (laughs) you've just made two movies each getting in bigger budgets. Now you're making a giant budget studio move, third installment of a huge franchise. Um, you know, whether you think the movie's good or not, doesn't matter. Fred, I like, I think it's fun. And, and, but so you've made three movies that aren't box office successes. Monster Squad is the one that probably should have done better than it did, but other out external forces, rating, time of release, conflicting, contradicting marketing campaigns. Yeah. The time when it came out and the fact that you only get 48 hours to not get a word of mouth movie and there was not a lot of push behind it um, is going to tank your chances. And Fred Decker goes into director jail. Right. That's super unfair, uh-huh. not only to Fred Decker, because of those external forces and a machine that you have no part of controlling, uh, but it's also unfair to us as moviegoers and audiences because we don't get to see what he would have made. Right. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're and I think that's the that. tragedy of it. But the yeah. tragedy isn't the movies that you made that didn't do good. The tragedy was what we, didn't, what we as audience didn't get to see. And I've been trying to, you know, ring that bell for the last couple of years about that. I've real, I, I understand it that way. It's yes, it's unfair to Fred as an individual or as directors as a group for that dynamic to happen. But it's certainly unfair to us that we don't get to see what they would have done. Yeah, because I know I I know one awesome movie that Fred had ready to go at a, at a big studio uh, and whether I was in it or not, I don't know that, you know, it would have been their choices. Uh, but, you know, he was making a Johnny quest movie. Oh, oh God. And that, that would have been phenomenal. That, how great would that have been? Yeah. 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 Now that you, I, uh, now that you um, have the, the filmmaker and producer brain, I'm going to twist it a little bit. I'm sure the question's always been asked. If there was ever a script for a sequel. Probably wasn't ever planned because the movie did so bad. <laughs> I'm less interested in if there was a script for a sequel. And more so interested if you... Since now all the rage is doing reunion movies and TV shows. Where you come back for either a movie or a limited run TV show. If you had the poll. And they're going to say... Andre, we want you to come on and we want you to produce a sequel to The Monster Squad years later. What would you want it to be about? Um, I I know that story because about, I don't know, six or seven years ago, we were on an airplane and I came up with this. Actually, I came up with this crazy idea of what the opening sequence would be um, based off someone was doing a competition, like a trailer competition at a film festival. And I was like, oh, you know what? 
be cool is just the opening sequence to a sequel to Monster Squad, and it should be this. And I was like, that'd be really cool. And then a couple years later, Ryan and I, and I think Ashley was on a plane, and we were flying somewhere. I can't remember. Long flight. And I kind of jotted down this idea, and I was thinking about it, and then I told them, and they were like, yo, that's pretty (laughs) good. That works. And then so I tooled it a little bit, and I, I went to some friends at home, and I sat him down, and I, I kind of explained it. And what's funny is, you know, when I when I talk about this concept, uh, I don't just give, like, the elevator pitch. I actually – I had – it took, like, 30 minutes to explain because I sort of, like, went – I went chapter by chapter. I sort of had it in my mind as chapter. It wasn't really flushed out as a, you know, as, like, a, as a three-act screenplay yet. And uh, – uh, but now it, now it sort of is uh, as a story concept. It, I won't get into particulars, but I think it's um, – re- reboots and remakes don't work, especially with something like this. Uh, the other thing is because we've also seen a bunch of that that's been inspired by Monster Squad. You can call it what you want. It rhymes with Stranger Things and 8mm and a bunch of other stuff, right? Right. Um, whether they admit it or not. <laughs> um, we all know. But one, I think – uh, you know, and even stuff where they do admit it, like a movie from RKSS, uh, Summer of '84. You know, sort mm-hmm. of like the horror kind of killer next door movie. That's a yeah, direct like Monster it. Squad, yeah. Because I know those guys. <laughs> it's it's two guys and a gal. You know, the directing and writing team. They're French Canadian and they're fun as shit. They're such cool people. And they're like, uh, no, you don't know that. Direct Monster Squad. <laughs> we we made our own Monster Squad. You know, and I was like, yeah, it was fun. Um, I kind of liked that movie, and. I love them as people, but remakes and reboots don't work. Homage is on the thing. If you're, if you're going to revisit it, or like you said, you know, I, I think a revisit or a sequel is the way to go. It's got to be the original characters. You got to fill in some, some things that missed in the first one or tie in some things. To the first one, obviously uh, what I think a sequel is without getting into details of the cool story that is on this laptop <laughs> and in this noodle here is uh, a reason that um, we learn that, uh, you know, we kind of have to work together again because something's happening. We don't know what it is. We have to figure that out. We do. Um, We end up going through the process. There's a montage. And, um, (laughs) but then it's also a passing of the torch of the experience and and the information and the knowledge because, you know, in our universe, like we're the only ones that know what happened. But now if we're older and we have families of our own or we're connected to other families, uh, someone needs to know this information and have the knowledge and enthusiasm, you know, for the next time, you know, in the next hundred years. Right. And I, I think that's a unique way. It, you know, it's not reinventing the wheel. I think we've seen stuff like that before, but mm-hmm. that's what works in right. situations like this. I, I have a, it's my, I, I flushed out a really cool story of what a, a revisitation could be. Um, but then I also like another concept of mine that's in the Monster Squad universe um, that has nothing to do with our time. It, you know, part of the story of the Monster Squad is, um, you know, it opens up in 1887 and Van Helsing and his people, right. uh, they blow it. And what we don't realize is that, you know, we never saw why they blow it. They shot that scene, but it was cut out. And what it was, is they staked Dracula, and then they go up to the castle to the limbo thing, but they leave a guy to guard the body, and Dracula gets away. Right? Okay. And if you've ever seen that deleted scene, it's a setup to a payoff of Rudy at the end with the three vampire brides. 
because this guy's fighting three vampire brides at the campfire and is about to get choked out and he's flailing around finds a stake stabs her and goes all right i made it but we also know in vampire lore if you unstake a vampire they come back to life and he had just grabbed the stake out of dracula and so while they're all up doing the limbo thing in the castle dracula sits up in the wagon and gets away because he kills the guy and gets away so now dracula's been walking around for a hundred years waiting for our time so he can destroy the amulet and take over the world uh so what i want to see is what he's been doing for a hundred years sure <laughs> what where has he been he's been walking around doing what causing mischief doing you know you know being an art history teacher like what's he been doing um, you know, and then things that tie in with, you know, sort of the only tease I'll give to kind of what I think my story is. Uh, and if he's been walking around, why can't he ever have kids? Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. there's a new generation of yeah. bad guy um, no. that, you know, that ties in with the old. And I, I want to see him walking around like what everybody always asks, like in Monster Squad, they're like, where do you get that bag of dynamite? I was like, man, that dude probably stole that from when they were building the Panama Canal or something. Like he's like, he's what are you talking about? Where you get? He's dragged. He's been walking around yeah. for a hundred years. I want to see that series, and like every episode is like. 10 years of, of time. Especially because he, he he's, he's a Dracula who's willing to literally roll his sleeves up and just like, you guys are useless. I'm going to do this myself. Like, <laughs> he, he's very kids. capable. But no, I, I, yeah. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe he's, you know, they sort of, they sort of touch on this in the first Wonder Woman movie where, you know, the mythology comes in with the real world that Ares, you know, the God of war is the reason we have world war one and strife on the planet. And we've got to defeat that you know, source of supernatural power behind, you know, the real destruction. And, you know, maybe Dracula has been nefarious for the last hundred years and involved in bad shit. Right. You know, or, or maybe he's got this army of like, he's got, there's, there's a million of his minions around that we just don't know. And he didn't know he was going to need because he didn't think anybody knew about it. And then he gets in front of, you know, five little kids get in his way and he gets, you know, gets defeated. So, you know, Plus, now he ain't messing around. He's stuck in limbo. Now maybe his kids got to dream up all of these minions and that have been walking around for decades and uh, and not mess around and find a way to break into limbo in the amulet now. And, you know, there's some cool stuff in my story. You'll like it. There's a beautiful opportunity for a scary German guy origin story in in the series, too. Oh, no doubt. I, I don't <laughs> think that we don't have a little where they cross paths and don't know yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know, the main reason I ask it because like so early on, like I'm I'm kind of a screenwriting nerd where I'm just obsessed with reading other people's screenplays because when you don't have money to make a film, you should write something because it's a good way to teach you. And I wrote my first screenplay in high school. It was 300 pages because I had no idea what I was doing. I had a I had a <laughs> copy of. Kevin Smith's uh, script for Clerks and one for Daniel Waters' original draft of Heather's, and I just taught myself how to write a screenplay off of that, which is why I'm obs- I, anytime you, sh- you you show the screenplay in the movie, I paused it and read the entire page because I've been <laughs> I want to read that script. But I in high school I I, I wrote 
a, I started writing my own sequel to Monster Squad, and funny enough, it's realistically just a um, a a. I was ripping off the Burbs. My whole idea is that you grow up paranoid as hell that there's always going to be monsters coming back, and you think your neighbor is like the reincarnation of one of these monsters, and you're really you're really freaked out by it. And the big twist is you you are con- convinced it's. It's 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 a it's a monster. You go and shoot him in the chest, and everyone's like, "You, Sean, you just killed that man!" And then he gets up, and it actually turns out he he was. And you're like, "Told you!" But then you know, it's like high school me thought this is genius, and I didn't even like looking back. Is like, man, I really ripped off the burbs <laughs> writing this. But so I, I just I love that you're so you know I don't think there's ever going to be a world where you're not connected to this movie, and I love that you're so connected to it that. You like the idea of a sequel so much that you're taking it upon yourself to write something or put ideas out there that might never happen, but you're doing it because you love it. Yeah, and I just think, you know, it's – you got to – you always say write what you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know that's the old <laughs> adage. Uh, I've, I've been discussing this movie for a long time and <laughs> and actually in the last, honestly, 10 years, I've learned more about it than the first 20. Hmm. And uh, that's been fascinating. And um, and realizing not just the kind of the you know existential kind of experience of it, but the actual experience of it, and 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 what that meant. And one of my favorite stories is um, something that I only realized not too long ago, and it's based off of a Ryan Lambert revelation story that he started telling years and years ago that I realized equated to an experience that I had that I didn't realize it sort of paralleled that type of thing. And boy, you know, the world would have been totally different if it didn't work out that way. And so we're constantly learning. Like you said, you watch Monster Squad and you learn new stuff about a movie. We can do that with a ton of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and then boy, if you, you know, you could read scripts of movies that you've seen and be like, this isn't like the movie at all. This is insane. <laughs> That's why I like doing that. Yeah. Or read the book that the movie is based yeah. off of. Um, I, I'm an avid reader. I, re- I read a lot. And, um, uh, I, I jump back and forth between, you know, kind of like my escape kind of fiction kind of adventure shoot 'em up movie, you know, stories or, um, you know, kind of nonfiction history or, you know, drug cartels or, you know, the cosmology or something. And, you know, you read the book and then you see the movie and the movie always sucks because <laughs> the book is so good. You can only you have to realize that you can only do so much in a movie. Right. So much more you can do in a book. And. Um, you know, some of my favorite books, you know, one of my all time favorite fiction authors, every single book that he's ever written, except for uh, one uh, uh, fiction of his books, uh, he wrote a nonfiction one, um, uh, has been made into major motion pictures. Wow. Uh, and most of them are good movies, <laughs> um, except for the, his last, his latest book, or his last two didn't get made, which I think should. Um, but they're all famous movies, but like, they're not as good as the book. The books are so much more descriptive and characters like, oh, you got to realize you can't do, you know, you can't put it all into a movie. Yeah. Now you can, cause every movie's five hours long now. Right. But, um, it, or, or it's, a a limited, it's a Netflix yeah, series. Yeah. A it's a Netflix release series. <laughs> so there, there's the, yeah, there's the, there's the, there's the, there's the, the easy out, the cop out, <laughs> but you know, and that's, that's, what's great about movies is you could revisit them and see something different. You'd be like, or you watch them in a different age, and it's a completely different experience. Um, I've had Monster Squad fans tell me, I've watched this movie probably 
you know, they're probably bullshitting. But I've watched this movie <laughs> monthly since I was nine years old. You know, I've watched at least once a month since I was nine years old. Or, you know, most people watch it at least annually. Um, but I had a guy that uh, was interviewing me six months ago. So he's like, honestly, I have a daughter and she just turned five. And she hasn't seen the movie yet, but I rewatched it as I normally do before our discussion. And it was a com- it wasn't a completely different movie, but I added a, a completely different perspective because now I'm watching this movie as a father to a right. five year old. Right. And it was a whole other experience. I still yeah. had my original lens yep. of this movie as the, as the kid that enjoyed it, but I also saw it from another point of view. And now it just means a whole other thing to me. Yeah. Uh, in addition to my original kind of uh, you know um, imprint. And that's what's neat about movies. That's what's neat about books. Um, I very rarely reread a book that I've read, um, but I used to try to reread my favorite book from my favorite author. You know, I used to try to reread it once a year, and I got away from that. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it 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 brings you back and it hits you in the feels, and but you also see new stuff because you're like, oh, I don't remember that part. Or, oh, that part means different now because I learned what he's meaning here because I read about it in a news part. Like, I didn't know what they were talking about. Right. Um, and one, once you allow yourself, especially when you become adults, to allow yourself that it's okay to, to, to not know about something or to learn something new about something you think you know about, oh, the world's so much bigger. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so much different. And your tunnel vision isn't as bad, and you honestly probably don't know jack shit about what you're talking <laughs> about, even if you've seen a movie 50 times, or read a book 100 times, or know all about this specific historical event. Because um, yeah. you know who knows more about it than you do? The people that were there. <laughs> you know, it's like, so that's always like, there's a whole other perspective. Like, you are not the expert. Like, the guy that the story's about is probably the expert. Like, now, rabbit hole and go find him and read his stuff. and it could blow your mind. You never know. Yeah. Totally different perspective because we're very easily get into myopic views of when we think we know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I think that's actually a really great segue into uh, what I think will be our final question because you've been very generous with your time. Um, and it's like and, what, like like almost eleven o'clock for you, Nick? <laughs> Where you're at? It's uh, yeah, yeah, it's pushing yeah, eleven. Just about that. Um, <laughs> And I've got another interview at eight, so we're good. Oh. We're wrapping up. Good. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you had any uh, one, one, two, or three uh, films on your shame list. Have you thought about that? Are there some, some of like, my shame list that I haven't seen? Big films yes, that you things have that you have not seen, seen that are kind of more iconic films like, or ones that you've just wanted like to. For example, Nick had never seen Rocky before we did the show. I hadn't seen The Godfather before we did this show. So, like, something big that. You've been pushing off for one reason or another. You're the hunter from the future, you know. <laughs> um, the Phantom Tollbooth. The, the one movie that everybody else in the world has seen that I have not seen and I don't plan to, I'm going to go with Avatar. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> but most kind of big classics or something, there, there's a handful. I don't know if I can pull one out. I always, people are like, how have you not seen Avatar? I was like, I had zero desire. <laughs> that, that is the reason. Zero oh, desire. That was my answer. I had zero desire to see that movie. That's why I've never seen it. <laughs> yeah. And when it's on, I'm like, nope. Still I, no desire. I would be perfectly happy if it were on my shame list. Unfortunately, I have seen Honestly, it. I think if I had a shame list right now, the problem is, like, we can't even get into, like, streaming shows and movies. Like, there's just too many. Yeah. Too many. Too many. It's not even a shameless. It's just I don't have a fucking time list. Um, <laughs> and even this year, you know, pandemic and shutter, I was still, you know, fairly active. But 
Man, and I go to my comfort stuff. I will watch episodes of TV shows that I have seen and I know the dialogue to before I crack open something new. Right. Um, for example, I did watch The Queen's Gambit, so I'm Netflix approved this year or for last year only. Yeah, that was I enjoyed that one a lot. She was fantastic in that. Um, I, I loved The Witch too. I thought I thought that was a great movie. A lot of people hated it. I was like, did you see what happened in this? Like everybody was fantastic. Yeah. You go try to make a movie like that. Um, I dare you. But yeah, but you know, big, you know, big classic ones and 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 obscure ones. I mean, everybody's got some like that. But I'll I'll keep with Avatar because it's not really shameless. <laughs> Perfect, love it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for for joining us. Um, this has been a really, really special episode for us, and and it was a perfect way to celebrate number one hundred. Um, I, I hope the the documentary is very successful. I really enjoyed it. It, it was mm-hmm. a really great two day uh, double feature for me, and um, yeah, no, uh, I'll, I I will be sharing my monster squad love with those that I know as well. And we'll try and uh, get more to join the group. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Like we, we've, I've said it a couple of times, but truly thank you. Uh, and, uh, and if you could, you know, send me that, that, that shooting script for the monster squad, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll see if I have a digital file from you know, the production archives or something. It's uh, it may just be a PDF, but if not, it's, that's fine. Like I'm fine with a PDF, but you know, if you, it, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> and and don't don't get fooled online because I think someone's out there selling the Monster Squad script signed, and really what it is, it's just the cover page. <laughs> someone got someone got fooled on that one time. So be, beware, folks. Um, no, hey, th- this was fun. I'm glad we got you know in touch. Uh, you know, glad Wes Allen was a conduit. Uh, and you know, if you guys um, you know you know miss a guest on episode 110 or something let me know and you need to fill in hit me up you know we're free we'll talk about movies or or you know so yeah, yeah so. you know uh i appreciate it stay in touch uh your listeners uh you know your followers um if they want to please follow me on instagram and twitter please follow at the squad doc if you're interested in wolfman's got nards uh currently it is uh, released for uh, you know uh, uh, transactional video on demand, rental or digital download in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, we are currently uh, we currently have an international sales agency out there doing international. So if you're not in U.S. and Canada, hang tight, stay tuned for a little bit. We'll be coming out with those markets and information as soon as possible. And the best place to find that is either at thesquaddoc.com or at the Twitter and Instagram of the Squad Doc or mine, Andre Gower and Andre Gower Official. So uh, follow me, chime in, tell me your Monster Squad stories, tell your Wolfman's Got Nard stories. Um, you know, we, we love to you know we love to hear that, and I I try to respond or at least give a like or a heart or a thumbs up to as many people as uh, reach out social media as, as as possible. Yeah, well, awesome. Perfect. And Thank uh, you. Did, I don't say this because you're you're here in the in the chat but i uh think it's safe to say that both the uh monster squad and wolfman's got nards is going to be uh shameless approved I, yeah. I think that is safe to say it was no question with michael but uh they both won me over honestly if you would have said they weren't i was gonna personally fly to maryland and kick <laughs> your ass 
<laughs> I wouldn't have let you not because, like, you know, sometimes, like, you know, this movie that's important it's to me, shame. like, List like you know, the the Warriors means a lot to me. Nick didn't like it as much as me, so we're like, well, it's, you know, it's not necessarily shameless approved. So, you know, we have to we have to butt heads sometimes. It, it was uh, a three and a half star for me. I enjoyed Nick it. did not <laughs> dig it. <laughs> I I didn't have the same fervor that Michael had. I I got a lot out of it. The costume design alone was. <laughs> That's always when people say, whenever you're like, I liked your movie a lot, the costumes were really accurate. That's when you're trying to be nice. Whenever someone says, like, Michael, I liked your movie, the music was really good. I'm like, fuck you. That's what people say when they're trying to be nice about how much they hated it. I, I don't hate the Warriors. Uh, the Warriors is a fun movie, but yes, yeah, so it's it's a little kind of, wait, huh? Who's designing this idea? Uh, that didn't look very uh, Queen's... Coney Island, authentic to me, um, but um, but it's fun. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of movies that we. Yeah, I'm looking forward to swapping lists and, and coming back on. And we and will, doing, we will. Doing, maybe it's my shameless, or maybe it's one of yours. I might come up with. Yeah, something yeah. Good we'll, that you guys we'll, we'll we'll send awesome. some lists, and then uh, real quick, just because he would hate me if I didn't say it. One thing I'm also going to send you as well is a good friend of mine. Who you you did the horror hound convention? That's actually where I originally met you years ago. Um, yeah. Though I, cause I do not blame you if you don't remember. You, a, <laughs> you meet a lot of people. Um, I met a good friend of mine there named Zach Bassam. He he is in a band called The Big Bad, and we bonded because I saw him play a live show, and they have a song called Shadowbrook Road. That uh, I'm going to send you a link to so you can hear it, uh, and uh, yes, because I feel like you'd do. appreciate it. And then Nick, I'll send I'll send it to you so that way you can end the show on that. As well. Excellent, perfect. So, well, then let's cut to it. But first, if you don't like that, then I've got two words for you: watch, watch movies. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers. Today's episode was edited by Nick Richards. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The Shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Byers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.